You're now listening to Sound Talent Media. Check out more shows at SoundTalentMedia.com. Hey, what's up, everyone? I'm Matt Migaki, the vocalist of Cryptopsy and the host of the Vox and Hops Metal Podcast, where I sit down with fellow metal musicians. We talk all about their lives and music while sharing killer craft beers. If you've ever wanted to sneak backstage and share a beer with one of your favorite musicians, well, Vox and Hops is the podcast for you. This week on the podcast, I had an amazing conversation with Morgan Lander and S.J. Jones about Kitty Pig. There is this episode and over 450 other ones to help you enjoy life, metal, and craft beer. So what are you waiting for? It's time to become a Vox and Hops head. Cheers! This is the Jabberjaw Podcast Network. Visit JabberjawMedia.com for more shows like this one. Hello, I'm Doc Coyle. This is the X-Man Podcast. Excuse me for enjoying a tasty beverage whilst on air, but, uh, you know, duty calls. Yes, welcome to the show. Uh, It's been a couple weeks since my last episode, and I was going to put an episode out last week. In fact, I was planning on to put out an episode, four episodes this month, you know, up, up the ante right quick but the events the shooting event in las vegas last week really just bummed me out kind of depressed me and i have to be kind of in a good mood or somewhat to do this i like to to be cheery and entertaining for you guys just don't want to be a sour puss and recently i've been talking a lot about current events in these in this monologue and you know, I don't know if you guys really want to hear that. I don't know. I don't know if you come here just for music, just for those stories. You know, I, I have to kind of strike a balance between being entertaining and also using the platform. And also, I feel expression in and of itself is a creative uh, platform for me personally um, and getting all that stuff out. But this week, to be to be truthful with everything going on, I think we could all use a break from all that stuff. So I'm not going to go on some long rant this week. I'm just going to pretty much get into our interview. But I will say, just to let you guys know, I have a bunch of shows coming up. For the first time ever, I've just been getting interviews, boom, 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 knocking them out. And I have a bunch of people coming up. And I'm going to tell you about it because they're done and I know they're going to be coming out soon. So coming up soon on the X-Men show, we have OJ, Chris Ojeda from Byzantine. I think that's going to be next week. I have to see. I don't know which all order these are coming up, but these will be the next shows. I have uh, Billy uh, from Biohazard and Power Flow coming up. Peter Witchers from Soilwork, ex-Soilwork guitar player. Art Cruz, the drummer from Prong, and also the newly reformed Winds of Plague. And I also have a special NBA episode of the show coming out with Derek James, who is the Minnesota Timberwolves uh, ESPN uh, beat writer. So that'll be cool. We're going to talk some basketball with the new season about to start. But um, but yeah, we got a lot of, so I got, I got a lot, lot of stuff coming up, but also some other people. I'm, you know, I'm going to try and capture some big fish, you know, some big guests. I got to, you know, I got to start hustling a little bit because, you know, you know, there's a lot of podcasts now and everyone's, you know, tapping on my phone. Hey man, 
do my podcast, man. Everyone got a podcast. All right. But this is the place to be. Okay. All right. I'm guys, I'm gonna get that. I'm gonna hustle. I'm gonna get some big interviews. Gonna get some people that, that no one's talking to. There's certain people everyone's talking to. So I'm trying to get the the rare, the rare cool ones. But hold hold on, hold on, hold on. Oh yeah. Is that annoying? Yeah. Gotta have a beverage, guys. Talking is very thirst quenching. Anyway, not gonna mess around too much with you guys. Just I'm, I'm gonna get right into the motherfucking interview. All right. So we have Steve Evitz, and if you've listened to heavy music for the last twenty years, pretty much you've heard this guy's work. I I go through all the the bands he's worked with in in the in the conversation, but uh, he was very very impactful. To God forbid, he was the producer of our first full-length album, Reject the Sickness, and it really changed my life and changed the course of the band. So I'm really glad to get him get him in here, and and we it goes a lot beyond just talking about God forbid because this is someone I'm personally a fan of and really admire his work. Uh, and yeah, man, he's a great guy. Come, we come from the same uh, the same town in in New Jersey, even though I, I really came from New Brunswick, but. For the sake of this, we'll say we come from East Brunswick, but I think people who know his work are really, really going to enjoy this because we get really deep. We go, it's a, it's a pretty, it's a really long talk, but I'm perfectly fine with that because everything there was totally real and amazing. Anyway, check out this conversation with the man, great producer, Steve Evans. really funny because I, I always relate when I'm like in the studio with people and then like trying to coax a performance out of them. And I always, I relate a lot of things to baseball. I use like baseball analogies. <laughs> is that, is that kind of getting beyond people? Cause in many ways we're, we, you know, before we, we started recording, we we're talking kind of about this old school mentality and there's nothing, uh, you know, in terms of Americana more old school than baseball. Right? Uh, yeah. I love baseball. I love baseball as for, I'm not a big sports guy except for baseball. I love baseball. And I use those analogies so many times as far as like performance anxiety. Like, you know, like so many people when they come into the studio, they have, I call it, you know, you call it red light fever. It's like, you know, mm-hmm. when, you know, they're playing fine. And as soon as they know you're recording, they start getting nervous. And it's like, oh man, oh, you know. And it's I'm like, the same way when I'm at home recording. Right. <laughs> it's with no one but around. It, but it's like. To me, baseball is such a perfect analogy for for performance and for life because like think about baseball, it you know, and and dealing with performance and you have to deal with you have to baseball teaches you to deal with failure. If you fail 7 out of 10 times in baseball, you're a freaking all-star. You're batting 300. That's you're going to make the all-star team. If you fail 7 out of 10 times. Think about that con- you know, that concept and I think of that concept in here Working on like, you know, like, because what I do and I approach everything as performance based, even though I'm still using Pro Tools and, you know, you can fix things, I, ch- I choose not to. I, I want to get it out of the player and I don't like it being perfect. Yeah. And it's like, who cares if you fail? Try it again. Here, rewind. Let's punch in again. It's not a big deal. Well, you know I, I, mean? I think that like, that analogy essentially you could use for any sport. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, there's a, I think a famous quote from Michael Jordan saying, "I, for as many shots as I hit, I missed 
just as many and and and, it's and that, true, that idea of having but the idea of having a short memory and that having a short memory and right. and and being able to kind of walk it off and you know the sports analogies are always going to be applicable well I it's think, performance it's yeah. performance is performance whether it's musical or athletic it's still performance mm-hmm. and but to me like if you shoot three out of ten in basketball you're not good if you if you complete three out of ten passes as a quarterback in the nfl you're terrible you have an awful quarterback rating if you if you win three out of ten if you hit three out of ten times you're awesome that's why I, you know, that's to me, it's always about base. It's always baseball for me. <laughs> I, so I, so I guess by, by that virtue from the musical perspective, then we fail a lot more than we succeed. And when it comes to recording, we do, <laughs> I, that's probably, that's probably true. That's probably true. But the thing is to have, like you said, having that short memory, it's so important to just stay in the moment, stay, you know, like. Just stay focused and, you know, it's that same, the baseball analogy, like the just do what's in front of you one pitch at a time. Same analogy. Like do what's in front of you. Like, I, you know, I always, you know, we're working to do a, you know, a whole performance, a whole take of a song. And it's like, you know, you can see the guitar player, even when I'm watching them, I'm in there with the recording the drums with the drummer. And like, you can see him thinking about the fill he's about to play. And instead of like just staying down and staying and and performing and just slamming through and like just really like being present and like focusing on the pocket and the groove, they're thinking about that fill that's really hard. So they they stop, you know, they stop actually like being there, being here now, being like, Mm -hmm. and it's uh, to me, that's that's everything. It's like when you can not think about what's happening five seconds from now and just think about what's here now that's when you're always going to do your best work yeah that's being in the moment and i think or what they call flow state flow state the zone whatever you want to call it but uh it's super important to to i'm I'm always trying to facilitate even though I'll, i'll be on somebody about performance it's more about me telling them don't worry about the performance I'm here to worry about your performance. Mm-hmm. I want you to not think about it and to start turn your brain off because in any kind of creative process, as you know, the more you your brain, your active conscious brain starts thinking about stuff, the worse it generally is. Overthinking is the death of music. It's the death of creativity. It's just uh, it's just not a way to be. Well, I think specifically in the the metal realm where I come from, where it's so much of of it is about precision. So much of it is about, in a sense, replicating a machine, a a computer, a a perfection, a rigid, rigidity, 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 rigidity. Yeah. Um, and and so I I've seen that as the technology has improved and. But has it? Well. That's the that's the question I always pose to it. Has it made it better? No, no, no. I'm not saying the, that oh. it's made it better. I'm saying the oh. technology has made. Well, here's what technology does: it makes things easier. Now, I don't know if that makes it better. S- yes and no. Does it? Because right. Was it like? Is it? Think about think about this. Think about this. Think about the first God forbid record. Yes. That we recorded together. Mm-hmm. What did we do it in four days? No, no. We did. All right. So we did a demo. 
in a the day, demo, but in the demo days. turned into like the record. No, it didn't. No, it didn't. We re-record didn't? all that stuff. Oh, we so, did. So we did. Okay. We did a two. We did two song demo in two days. Right. That was basically like a test run to basically see how we work together. Yeah. And then we used one of those for like a compilation. We, or we something. Used, I thought we yeah we they wound up getting used for something. Yeah, they got they got used, and then. When we did the full length, it was 10 days total. So I think it was seven days tracking and then three days mixing. Okay. For Reject but, the Sickness. But now think about this. And, you know, back then in the, those days, all those records, you know, that, that I to, built in the early part of my career on, the Hatebreed record. It was all like that quick. Nine days. Yeah. Including mixing. You well, know what I mean? Like... And the record sold whatever, how many hundred thousand copies it sold. I'm actually not talking about the, the better aspect. I'm just saying certain things are easier, meaning that we had to go to Traxy Studios with Steve Evitz to make that record. Right. Where but, I can make a record. And I'm not saying it's better, but I can do that on my own. The thing to me, my point, my point originally was about the Hatebreed record, nine days, Snapcase, two weeks, you know, uh, buried alive two weeks, like all those records I've made in like a week, two weeks, mm -hmm. 20 days, whatever. And they were all to tape. It was all to tape where there's no screens. There's no going back and like, Oh, let's re-edit the drums. Let's do this. Let's do that. Let's put, you know, like get it super tight. Like let's, let's go on the computer and, and tighten everything up. And it's like, is it better? I don't know. It's so, you, it, so you're saying by virtue of, listening to something and determining what is tight and listening what is good. as opposed to looking looking changed and in a way that that makes it actually harder and take longer because you're it does it, yeah. believe it or not like when i think about now all the records i make it's generally it's a month six weeks ish you know what i mean i agree and i think about making a record in like eight days and i'm like how did you do it? I, I have no idea how I, seriously, I have no idea how I, I did it. I think the same thing. I have no clue. Well, with and God like, forbid, like, every, I can't. every record took longer. I mean, by the, the last I mean, determination, you tracked that one in what, like three weeks? Three weeks. Yeah. Well, three weeks with everything mixing and, right. and everything. So still, it's like, and then every other record since then, no, way longer. But I can at least say, and I think this is really important, is the style of music uh, has a big factor in that. And sure. all those bands that you mentioned, including us, were doing something that was compact and minimalist. It, uh, in terms of what was actually going into the production, we weren't bringing in an orchestra. We weren't we weren't doing all this crazy layering no, and having it's true. It's fifty true. guitar solos I mean, calculating and vocal infinity, harmonies. I did. You know, that's the thing. The thing that I think about that one. You know, calculating infinity. Dillinger was two week, thirteen days. You know what I mean? Like to tape. Well, all right, and so, that was the only Dillinger record we made to tape. So, but here's an interesting thing about that that I think about, and I remember specifically having this memory of doing the God Forbid song on the next record, uh, the song called um, Nothing, and it's like mm -hmm. two minutes and 30 seconds, mm -hmm. and I remember tracking it really quick, but part of it because, guess what? The song is two minutes and 30 seconds, and it's real, you just bang, 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 all it's kind of forced in and out, and when... You know, and there's a different type of, um, I don't know, because those are the only two records we did a tape was Reject the Sickness and and, and, and and Determination. And, but there was always that feeling, right? I think when you have like, all right, we have 10 days to do a record. We have three weeks to do a record. There is a, a dread. There's that, a dread. That hangs over 
And there's a, I forget who, I, I know there's a quote that um, Jesse Cannon always uses that he, from somebody, and it's like. Jesse Cannon? You know Jesse? I know the name. I'm, I'm, I'm just trying to place it. Jesse as uh, a producer. He used to assist me years ago. Okay. Um, he has uh, a couple of books. One, um, uh, bo- books on the music industry. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is, and he has. He used to have this website called Museformation, and uh, he does that noise creators thing. Okay. And yeah. That, yeah. The that's that's his company. That's probably where I know know the name from. Yeah, Re- and he recently. has a podcast, Noise Creators Podcast, as well. Um, but I know that there's a there's a there's some sort of scientific like rule that the amount of time that you have is the amount of time you'll spend. Yeah. If you go, oh man, we got six months to make a record. This is awesome. We could take our time. I guarantee you, at the end of six months, the last week, you're like scrambling, going, oh my god, we're not finished. We're not finished. Yeah, I think that's a very human quality. I've <laughs> I've, I've made that analogy similar to. If you give people space, right? Like if you live in a studio apartment, you're kind of be gonna... efficient with your space. Exactly. And then if you have a big house, you're gonna see, oh, your garage is full. It's and now cluttered. You have... It's all this. I yeah. mean, look, look at my control. <laughs> my control. This control room that I have here used to be pretty spacious, and now yeah. it's like. Things. I mean, there's lots of gear in here, but there's also things that I could probably get rid of. It's a little bit of. It's not hoarder's level, that's for sure. But it's uh Well, well I just think cluttered. it's it speaks to our human psychology and how it 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 applies in many different areas of our life. But um, no, so here's what I want to do. I want to go back a little bit. Okay, sure. That's 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 what we do here because right. your origin story I know a little bit about, and I think, and I wonder if you remember when we recorded together, because for some reason certain experiences burn brighter in my memory than others and sure. the record we did i feel like i remember everything about it um and i don't have the greatest memory to be <laughs> to be honest and i feel like looking back on it we just pestered you <laughs> and just talked your ear off for 20 anytime we weren't recording we're like oh so what was that like what are you doing here <laughs> i do remember some of that i remember your brother being like that and i remember I remember Corey. What's up, Corey? If he's listening, <laughs> uh, I remember Corey being like that. Yeah, for sure. Just, but, but no. But we were so into the scene and into the records that that you had done because they were they were so transformative. Like, all right, so I actually made I got the list here of oh, the records really? of the records from that era. Because the thing is, you have done so many albums <laughs> and worked on so many albums. You have to kind of pick. The highlights, and because you can't go to everyone, it's it's too much. Okay. But just from, so I want to talk about the early era. And so these are probably yeah. some of my favorite stuff, or I think notable stuff. So, Dead Guy, Fixation on mm-hmm. a Coworker, a bunch of Symphony X records. Oh yeah, Lifetime, which obviously led into kind of working with Saves the Day. Yep, Kid Dynamite. I mean, Human Remains, Using Sickness as a Hero, which is not a super famous record, but those are the, some of the guys that end up in Burned by the Sun and, yep. and, and things like that. Very influential record for me. Snapgaze, prog- Progression Through Unlearning, mm-hmm. Hatebreed, Satisfaction, The Death of, the, of Desire, Dillinger Escape Plan. Obviously, you've worked on all the records, but yep. uh, at that time, it was you know from it was that the era. Running Board EP. Running Board, the, the Now or Never. The self-titled. EP, right. and then Calculating Infinity. All Out War for Those Who Are Crucified, Turmoil, The Process of, E-Town Concrete, Sick of It All, Buried Alive. So there was there was this, and that to me, and this was all the stuff while you were still at Tracks East. Not Sick of It All. Sick of It All was post-Tracks East. After, I'm sorry. All right. Yeah. So 
but right around the area. That was right around that era, yeah. So a snapshot in time, um, and this yep. is, and pretty much, I'd say all that stuff you'd worked on before you worked with us. Uh, just about all of it. Right. When, when did we work on, when did we do Reject the Sickness? 99. 99. So yeah, that was pretty much like, that was right around, that was towards the end of my tenure at Tracks East, actually. Yeah. So in many ways, I look at it how this was the scene we were involved in and all these bands loomed very large as far as being influential and being on this kind of pedestal the way we, we looked at it. And it was also a time where a lot of bands in the underground and independent music didn't have good recordings. It mm -hmm. was actually prohibitive based on cost and, and access to talented yep. people to have, to have good recordings. So that also made it in a way that if you had a good recording, it meant you were part of this exclusive club of quote unquote yeah. professional bands. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's funny because like me being introduced to a lot of underground metal and, and punk and, and stuff and I always loved the feeling I got from the music, but I was like, man, these records sound like crap. And I was like, how do we, how do I, you know, take like even the, when I first started at Tracks East, you know, there was still like a, you know, came from like the, you know, we're both from East Brunswick. I, mm -hmm. You know, there was that whole Central Jersey, like even like the hair metal, pop metal scene or whatever. Well, the hair metal, that's, and, that's what it's actually I was going to, I was going to get to. Yeah. So Steve, you were in a band called American Angel. <laughs> yes, I was. And... I knew this because you had mentioned it, but also some of the records were hung up yep. at, at, at Tracks East. And I went back and I, I, I listened to some, some American Angel in, in preparation for this. And this is essentially an 80s style hair 80s glammy style. band. Or how yeah, would you, how would you characterize it? Well, we had hair, but we weren't really... A, you, you guys know, had the look. It we had the look for it, sure. But it was only a, a stone I'd like to think poison. we had a little more of an, an edge to, to our stuff than, than, uh, than some of the other from the scene from our scene but you know our stuff had pretty heavy guitars and it was a little more darker well, you guys are and, it was a high level musicianship i could tell as, as well fairly yeah i mean we yeah we had great musicians in our band you know and so um, when did when did that start god that started <laughs> now i'm dating myself but that that was like the late 80s and we first and you uh, played bass and i played bass and uh you know, I pick up the bass every once in a while, and I've played on a few records that I've produced. Um, How many records did you do with American Angel? Well, we did one full length. We signed to a, like a BMG subsidiary, this little indie label called Grudge Records. Um, and we had one record there, and then the label folded. And then we wound up putting out like a, an EP. Eric from Tracks East and another guy started this little indie label called Criminal Records. It was just us and the Harker Band Vision were on, oh, yeah. were on Criminal. And we put an EP out there. And and then we wound up just... I started working at Tracks East. And we started just recording stuff here and there. And we put out like one other thing and that was really it. You, um, you Did the band disband or you, you left? Uh, the band broke up and then, uh, the singer tried to, tried to reform it a bunch of times and he wound up reforming it with all new members besides himself. But, um, uh, not uncommon, not uncommon, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, no, I, I walked away from it and, you know, that scene was, 
I was more into metal than that kind of scene. You know, I grew up listening, like, I, I loved listening to Iron Maiden. That was mm-hmm. my thing. Like, I learned how to play bass listening to, like, Steve Harris and Geddy Lee. That was, like, my thing. It was, like, Maiden and Rush. Those were my things. You can even see Eddie, <laughs> Iron Maiden over there. So did, did <laughs> that kind of... Not saying you guys were glam, but there was no. But, but, but being enough, is it is it kind of a victim of the era where kind of whatever is popular, well, you get was, caught up in it. I, I don't know if we got caught up. I mean, I just I was I liked the one guitar player, Danny. Um, I always looked up to him. He was like a year older than me in high school in East Brunswick High School, and um, uh, I wanted to play in a band with him because I just thought he was awesome, and. Um, so I, you know, I wound up, there was an opportunity to join the band and another guy, this guy, Phil, who was the original drummer for the band wound up, um, they kicked out the bass player and they, they wanted me to, they got me to join. Mm-hmm. So I joined and, uh, but the funny thing is that my be all end all to be in the band, to be 100% honest with you was, boy, I hope the band becomes successful so I can open a recording studio. So that was all. That's legitimately. Did you the, go to school to record? I did. I actually never finished the school. I went to Institute of Audio Research in Manhattan, but um, through a bunch of things financially with my family, wound up like uh, I couldn't. They they couldn't finish paying for my school, and I couldn't. You know, I couldn't afford to do it on myself. And I was. It was in the position where we weren't. We couldn't really. My family was didn't have too little money for me to get financial aid, mm-hmm. but we didn't have enough for me to, to afford me to finish going to the school. But in reality, I mean, most of the stuff I knew I had known before, uh, I was there because How? I bought, well, there's, there's one book that you can buy that anybody could buy. It's still out. I mean, it's probably in its, I don't know how many editions it's called the Re- John Worm, the recording studio handbook. And it deals with most of the concepts of like, old school technology, but like recording with consoles, but it teaches you the basic principles, even like signal flow and microphone positioning and certain other concepts. Stuff that's still applicable. Stuff that's still applicable, even though it's so much is different now. But um, I discovered a reel-to-reel tape recorder in my parents' attic when I was like seven. And I used to record my sister playing piano and I used to just mess around with the tape machine and like learn how to splice tape and so I, it always fascinated me and like listening to old Beatles recordings, I had this old Panasonic stereo that it was, you could either set it for stereo or dual mono when you hit the mono switch. So there were left volume controls for the left channel and the right channel, separate volumes for each speaker. But if you put it in mono, it would put it both each one up the center. Mm-hmm. And so unlike a lot of the early Beatles recordings, like it would be like drums were the, on the left and like vocals were on the right. And that was wrong, right? Because they were originally well, mono. Right. They were, they, all the recordings were originally mono and stereo was an afterthought. And they would just go, I don't know, put the drums over one side and put the vocals on the other. I don't know. It'd be what like do you a, do with stereo? Hi hat be on the left. Well, <laughs> like the whole drum kit because it was down, down to mono. You know what I mean? So, but I would like, it was like, wow, I could actually like turn, with putting the, the switch on, I could actually turn the volume of the music down and turn the vocals up. So I could actually like rudimentary like mix and like it was like, it was always fascinating to me. So I always, my always, the be all end all for me being in a band was always like, man, I hope the band makes a ton of money so I can open a recording studio. So, so interesting because I feel like a lot of people end up there the other way around where they're doing a band 
and maybe they start recording because they want to save money or mm-hmm. they're just and the band kind of ends up falling off and they're like, well, I've got to make a living. So yeah. I guess I'll start producing. No, I was the I was the annoying guy in my band. I would always try to record us even in the early days with the American Angel, like try to record, um, try to record, uh, you know, do on my little portable like Yamaha four track. Like, come on, let's let's make a new recording. And like we do try to always try to make the recording sound better. Yeah. You know, and then when my band got our deal, we had a little extra money from, you know, from signing or whatever. And I got like a couple of, like I bought, like it was actually a, a Tascam, an eight track cassette, which is not great quality, but it still was like eight tracks. So like, oh my God, I have eight tracks now. This is the best. I didn't know anyone and had like, eight track. Right. And right. I, I was like, I had a little mixing board and I had a couple, like a, a little compressor and like a little effects and i was i was like making these like really trying to make these really great sounding demos and some of the ep that the band did this that ep that we put out were actually dumps from a track onto 24 two inch back at tracks east and like we would layer on top of that so that's crazy it's kind of funny so you start working at at tracks east i started working at tracks east because we recorded our first record there Mm mm-hmm and Eric produced it? And Eric produced Eric and his old partner Plinky produced it. Please tell me Eric had like 80s long hair. No, Eric Damn grew it. his hair later. Damn I it. mean, when you work with him, Eric grew, had his hair kind of, his hair, shag. no, Eric had short hair then. Oh, okay. Um, I was expecting him to look like, like Spinal well, Tap. Well, our originals, <laughs> that's the thing. Our original demos for that band were done at Trax East when Trax East was a basement studio in Spotswood, the town next to East Brunswick. Um, and his parents basement like he had a studio and we we did our first demos there and we wound up having a an acetate pressed and got played on wsou and that's how the band started really like getting traction in that in you know in the area and got our deal and whatever but so when we we got signed we made our record at tracks east when they when you moved to south river mm-hmm. and um and then, you know, I was always the guy in the studio. Like, I was, like, the first one in there and the last one to leave. The rest of the band couldn't care less. And I'm, like, just, like, I'm being the annoying guy in the band. Like, hey, what are you doing over there? Hey, can I help? Like, you know, like, and I, like, helped during mixing of the record. And and then, like, when the deal went south and I literally went to Eric, I was like, can I, like, work here? Like, I don't care. I'll, like, scrub the toilets. I don't care, whatever. And he's like, yeah, sure. And, like, he threw me in a session, like, he was like, okay, here's the patch bay, here's this, here's that, bye. He like, left? He left. <laughs> he like, yeah, he sat with me for like 10 minutes and then went, see you later. It was just like a vocal overdub session, but it was like still like, whoa, I'm, I'm like doing a session on my own. So like was instantly. Eric, did he, in a sense, he was like your mentor? He was, for sure. And he showed you a lot of what you know or you feel like or some of it? He showed me some, but it just he was just always supportive of me and like always, you know, I mean, I, I started producing almost, you know, I was doing like demos because from the band originally, like there was that scene in Jersey. So I wound up using, I wound up, the, the band was still around, but mm-hmm. we weren't like full time, but we were still playing shows and we still, you know, uh, so some of the bands left over from that scene were still coming to me because of my association with that band at the Traxies. So I started doing demos with those bands. And then, uh, I wound up producing the first thing I ever produced record. I ever produced was, uh, incantation, 
there was like a there was a little bit of a death metal scene in mm-hmm. Jersey, if you remember from it I was do. it was incantation. Mor- was it mortician? Were they Morti- well mortician, yeah. Are they Jersey? Right? And then uh incantation, mortician. Oh what? Human remains, demonacy, ripping corpse. Ripping corpse, that's what I was gonna say. Yeah. So um I started working with a lot of these bands. There's another band called uh Psychosis. Um, I started doing these demos. I did a demo with Incantation or a seven inch with Incantation and Mortician, Will from Mortician. So was it was it a situation at that time where you would take anything or was it a situation where, where you were kind of... Yeah, no, what, for there... sure. I mean, it was like basically like I produced Incantation, Armored to uh, Golgotha. This is 91, first record I ever produced. But it was like they just like booked... Time, time I mean, you know i did a, i did a seven inch with them when they did a split with mortician and i wound up uh then i guess they liked me john liked me the guitar player and uh so then it was like next thing you know it's like oh we're on relapse and we're signed we're gonna do a full length it's like whoa i'm recording a, you know now i'm like shit i'm recording a record yeah like <laughs> so you're so you're doing incantation the next i guess big credit you have is the mod stuff that was the, that was really i mean like the incantation was a i produced it but i didn't really co really i mean like i I produced it, but I didn't produce it. I was I basically recorded it. You know what yeah. I mean? I made suggestions. All right. For the people listening, but, can you tell them what the difference is between recording something and producing it? Well, that's a gray area. <laughs> that's a gray Well, what does it mean to you? Because I know it means different things to different people. It means different things to me on every project. Okay. You know what I mean? And I think early on that I was very much into like thinking like production was always about like tricks and making, you know, like all these like weird sounds and Mm -hmm. like, you know, and just, you know, it's a lot. And then being heavy handed on, on, on things like making your presence, making my presence felt. And the longer I've done it now, I've been doing this quite a while now, 25 years, whatever the hell it is. And, uh, the more, the older I've gotten and the more I've done it is, Sometimes the best producing you can do is to know when to leave things the hell alone and just guide the process. Get out of the way. Get so out of speak. the way and just capture the moment. You know what I mean? Well, that's what Jimmy Iovine was saying in that that new documentary, just basically saying that people will give the producer the credit, but he's like, listen, it's 90, 95% the, the, the artist. And- yeah, I mean, it d- but depends. You know, there's other types of producers like uh, John Feldman or Mutt Lang, if you go back to, to that reference from the 80s or whatever, who, you know, he's writing. He's doing yeah, a lot of, of co-writing course, of course, with the band, yeah. and he's very heavy-handed. Have you have you gotten in on that that aspect of it? Because I, I remember I mean, there was I one do, part on the God Forbid record. You, 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 I do, but I never really go... I, to my detriment, I probably never really... T- try to go in for and get like co-write credits on things. But I mean, I've co-written a lot of parts, you mm-hmm. know, like, so, I mean, I technically probably should, you know, yeah. but, um, I'm more of the arranger type guy, you know, and I'll write parts here and there, but for the most part, it's me like taking what's there and just like, well, what's, what can we try? What's, what's the possibility? Let's try other possibilities, mm-hmm. you know, and they could be bad. They could be good, you know, but I always tell the band, it's your record. It's not my record. It's your record. I'm here to make the you be the best version of what you can be. So it's, um, you know, the technical definition of producing is to to see a project through and make it on time and under budget and make sure it's good. 
So being but, kind of part of this, you know, maybe I guess unknowingly or unwittingly being a part of this this extreme music scene to a certain degree, I'm guessing that was not intentional. It wasn't intentional, but I mean, I love, you know, I, I listen to, you know, everything. I, and I, I, you know, I listen to pop, but I also love... A, I love heavy music. I, I love all. Well, I don't think you could do what you're doing without having a, a love for it and a, an appreciation well, of it. But and it's then just... you also have to un be able to understand it. Yeah, of course. You know, like if someone like who's comes from a different world and tries to produce like a a, a grindcore record, it's like they just to go. I don't know what the hell this is. This is just noise. I don't understand yeah. it. Doesn't respect. You know? Doesn't respect it. Doesn't understand it. I mean, that's the two things. Understand is one thing. Respect it is the other thing. You know what I mean? And I have a respect for, I don't think there's any kind of bad music. I think there's only music done badly. Well, I, th I think if, if in, in many ways you look at Dillinger as being kind of this uh, watershed moment for the noise genre, if you want to call that. But, sure. But the biggest difference, what you brought to it, I think, was to actually organize the noise and make it listenable in ways that... To, as far as I'm concerned, had not existed before in a way that was palatable. Was, you, I think it. I think it kind of. I like to say I had a part in it. I think, but I mean, I think we influenced each other mm -hmm. in that way. That you know, since I was there from the literally the genesis of the band, and you know, they came to me when you mentioned Dead Guy. I mean, Ben came to me because it's like I love Dead Guy and. Oh, you can tell if you listen to the to the self title. The self title has <laughs> right has there's definitely a dead guy influence for sure. Yeah, and you know, but then when um, the uh, the other guitar player John Fulton joined the band and he brought in that Robert Fripp Mahavishnu influence and then opened Ben's eyes to it and then Ben was just got super he he was like a sponge he just absorbed all of it and he was just like yes and then. Like they went from here to like when when I recorded the under the running board EP when the mullet burden when we, we first was like all right you know they came back in it was like all right Dillinger's back in this is great and they we got all the tones up and then like they rehearsed the mullet burden before we actually recorded it once and I was like what is this <laughs> it was just like the, I was I got super excited because I was like this is like the, the they just went from here like went from like literally from like seven to like 170 like just you yeah know, but like, that was that was the whole scene that's yeah. how we all felt we were like whoa this is a even for us where also we be, ended up becoming a very different band just being a in New Jersey and having that it influenced us and, mm -hmm. and we were mathy and we were doing weird stuff just because you can't help but kind of seep into your yeah. into your bones. Yeah. So I, I'd have to say that, you know, and, and we definitely, I think we grew together on a lot of it um, all the way up through, you know, through the final record. Um, so, so, but all right. So, so to kind of just before we get too, too deep into yeah. The Dillinger stuff. Sure, I I, I want to kind of uh, talk a little bit about this this era. Yeah, because absolutely to me there's are so there's a, a few things happening on a few different levels. You have a situation where I think you kind of created um a char a character a sonic character, but it it 
the interesting to me thing to me is how it worked across a few different genres of heavy music, right? Mm-hmm. So you had the kind of hardcore, right? The you know metallic hardcore, the Hate Breeze and the All Out Wars, and you and you and Buried Alive. So you made this real big impact there. But then you had this emo kind of thing, post hardcore thing, mm-hmm. uh, with some of the other bands. And then you had this noisy thing. So you were kind of doing this cross section, and then even a band like us, which I think was kind of maybe at you know maybe the most metal you know i I guess outside of like symphony x which is kind of their their own thing but almost like we were kind of that next what would be the next phase yep of the of uh, of that but specifically with the heavier bands your style of production um i want to talk about that well that's the thing you know it's funny that you mentioned the cross kind of pollinization um because even and it go it continues through to to this day. I know. When I do back to back, when I did my first record with the Wonder Years, that was coming on. I did the Wonder Years record, and then immediately after, I did Suicide Silence, The Black Crown. Yeah. You know, and I love that. I love swinging from one side to the other like that because you get that cross pollinization. Sorry, you get that cross pollinization where you get, you know. I'll take almost like a pop approach to tones and production when it comes to extreme metal. And I'll take a harder edge to the recording of doing a, a, a poppier side of a band and like give, get more of a, an edge where it's, it really has like some emotional impact. Um, I love that. I, I love, I love going, doing a poppy record and then a heavy record because I, I really, you know, if I just did one of the same kind of record, it would just get, first of all, get boring after a while. And then two, like I said, I just love bringing the influence of that. Well, you're well. The the thing I like about it because I, I listened to a bunch of uh, your catalog, you know, before I came here, and just getting a feel and seeing how you'll have a record. They'll literally back to back records, and even though the band doesn't sound the same, the records don't sound the same. No. But, and that I think is is refreshing. Yeah. Because I mean, because it's it's. I still take an old school approach to it. And again, I can't stress it enough. It's not about me. I don't, if I have a sound is my sound is trying to make the band sound as good as they can. A, a, a best sounding version of them. Can I talk about the sound? Cause I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm going to give some of my opinions okay, or, go ahead. or theories. If I was to describe your sound, it would be naturalistic. And there's a sense of that organic kind of impact like there's a difference between hearing record and being able to feel it right anywhere always so you your records especially like with the like the god forbid record the way it opens you know like the actual and the same thing with the the dillinger with the turmoil like there was this thing you could feel this Mm -hmm. this percussive thing that was kind of punchy thing it was kind of coming out of of the records but it you the band still sounded like a band and and it kind of didn't hit this point where it ever felt overproduced, but it, but, but the thing is, but the it's same, not like under, you know what I mean? It's yeah, no, not, I, no, no, but right. that, but that's the thing is, it, it, that's, at, the, at the same time too, I think you also have when it comes to the performance side of it, you trained us on essentially how to hear how or how to listen to performance and your ear we were like we didn't realize that the bar could be so high mm-hmm. and so then we essentially took your lead on every record we ever did where you know a lot of the times we would be kind of you know 
going through a take and then you're like looking at the producer, he doesn't say anything. You're like, we should probably do that again. Uh, and and you kind of set this this standard. So, and, but that was also in an analog world where you had to play it tight. There was uh -huh. no going back and fixing it. Right. But again, I still take that approach, even though I track mostly the digital now. Um, I'd rather it's got to come from the player. It always comes from the source. Yeah. Always everything that's that goes from the player. That goes from the tones. It's just, it's always the source, the source, the source, the source. I just did this recording workshop down in Brazil a few weeks ago, and that's the thing I always stress. It always comes from the source. Yeah. And because if, if you don't, like, all these people now, when they record DIs and the guitar, like, you know, and just, oh, we'll, we'll amp it. We'll, we'll, you know, re we'll, it. we'll reamp it. And it's like, why? Get a tone that you're happy with and commit to it. Like, I never understood that concept. Like it just doesn't. It's so alien to me. Maybe because I grew up making records on tape, where you had to make a decision and you had to get a tone. But it's like, why is everybody so afraid to commit to something? You know what I mean? And it's it's seriously. Why is everybody so afraid? Why are you telling me about my relationships, man? Uh, <laughs> um, yeah, I I think that's. I mean, the way I look at it is that it's a fail-safe. I remember the first time anyone ever told me about reamping was Colin Richardson mm -hmm. when he was mixing Gone Forever. Gone Forever, yeah. And we didn't do DIs, so he couldn't he couldn't do it. Yeah, um, it's like, ha, but, tough, but he was telling tough. me about it after the right. fact, like, oh, there's this thing called reamping, but um, the tone was still great. And that was actually... The, interesting about that record was that was kind of a, a deviation. So there are a few things that you kind of help describe the sound of the band. One, there's, certain, there's one thing you said, and this is something we would talk about a lot, is you're like, there's no heavy button <laughs> on, the, <laughs> on the mixing board. Yep. I always forget that. And this idea that the heavy tone comes from the hand. The heavy tone comes and, from you. It comes and, from the source. And you you know, you know, reference James Hetfield. You, re you reference Scott Ian. So exactly. really getting into the idea of technique. Oh, man. When I worked, I uh, just worked with, um, yeah, you guys had the heavy hand thing down to it especially like later on you guys like had it down to a science well yes awesome. but but the thing is i think those you know in a sense working with you what what you did was you brought the gain down on our amps mm -hmm. you gave us mid, some mid-range mm -hmm. and then you made us grind it out and then we start and then we start to understand it in a sense i and think then you hear it well we had the technique but what you what you did was kind of confirm it to us that you're on the right path, and this is how you have to do this it. This so, is how you do it, right? So, if you listen to determination, in many ways, we were tr we were trying to that sonic sound, sonic sound. That sounds stupid. <laughs> uh, uh, that that kind of low gain, mid range, really punchy sound. We continued to yeah. the next record. It really and and it was. And I think it was kind of cool about it is it it sounded very different from a lot of the metal at the time, which was obviously very distorted, very yeah. um, well, now, uh, but, scooped but, out. And then now everybody with the damn axe effects and like the fractals and, the, and you know, and the um, Kempers. Yeah. And everybody goes, oh, no, it sounds exactly the same. No, it doesn't. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, you guys who are guitar players who, who swear by that stuff. And I'm not saying that it doesn't sound good. It does. But it doesn't hit you the same way as actually pushing air with an amp and a speaker and a microphone. It just doesn't. I'm sorry. When you talk about like the thing about like there's a constant with a record that, and I'd like to think that if there is the, a thing that it is that when you hear it and you get that, mm, you get that hit and you're like, mm, there's that, that push and that, and it's 
jump tries to jump out of the speaker and that's what i always i'm always craving for that i'm always striving for that and it's like whether it's heavy or not heavy music it doesn't matter heavy doesn't have to be distorted heavy be like one of my favorite records i ever produced it's, i think one of the heaviest records i ever i ever did is uh, poison the well tropic rot and there's not one heavy guitar tone on that entire record yeah, it's, it's real stringy like, and, and it's like all like Vox AC30s and like Marshall Plexis with like you know with, you know what I mean like that's a really cool record. It's one of my favorites for sure. If I had to pick one of I had to pick a top five or whatever, that's got to be in the top. That's that's one of the top for sure. In many ways, I think one of those bands where I started to like the records more, and they got less popular. The more I liked, I know. I think the more interesting they got, I guess. Or oh my god, the last three records were so. I mean, I I love. I, I don't forget. I love uh, I love Tear from the Red. Yeah, but, you know. But I love the I love I really love I love you come for you. I love versions. Versions is is like a more chaotic version of what what they went up. They refined it more on Tropic Rock. Yeah. But it was so much fun. It was so creative and like it was so much fun working with um, with those guys and Ryan, just a super creative guitar player and Chris is a great drummer. He's got a great pocket. And uh, yeah, it was just a lot of fun. That was a really fun record. It's, yeah, I mean, I think I, it comes through. It's just like the it was just like everybody was really. It was like one of those moments where like everybody was really on like you know creative like synapses just firing. Everybody was just like just tossing ideas, tossing the ball back and forth, you know, and just like. Yeah, those are those are really special special ex experiences, and um, you know, unfortunately, I, I don't know if if because of the industry the way it's changed we don't in a sense i think a lot of bands are being robbed of that collective studio experience yeah well that's the thing they're, now it's like they're they they work on these shoestring budgets and that you know look i came up from the indie world like some of my friends who are producers who are used to working on you know six figure budgets constantly and they don't know what to do with a $15,000 budget I fortunately have made those kind of records almost my entire career. I've worked on, I've also produced plenty of big budget records, but the majority of my, my body of work has been, been indie records. Yeah. So it's, it hasn't been as much of a shock to me, but, and that's why I can't, I got this studio now because you can't afford on a $15,000 budget to go lease a commercial studio for 500, even 500 a day that that's your entire budget you're, you're in the studio for a month okay great we pay for the studio i mean i i gotta eat yeah. <laughs> I, I can't i can't just pay a studio and not like pay get paid for producing a record so so speaking of that um to kind of wrap up the whole tracks east era yeah so at that time when did it be become like when we went there where it was like we would just basically hire tracks east and we get and we would just request, hey, we'd like to record, yeah, but we'd well, like... Yeah, well, towards, in, in like 97, right around the, the snap case in April, that's when I actually, like, I was getting paid, on top of what they paid Trax East, I was getting paid to produce. Okay. And like, so that was around like a thing. Then. I had to, like, I literally went and asked for it, and they're like, why do you want money to produce? Like, because I'm actually producing the record. You, you're coming to me, and like, yeah. if you want me to just press record, that's fine, but like, you're actually... You come to me for my ideas and for like. Well, not know. only that. At a certain point, the Steve Evitz brand had become a thing, and it and it, it made right. It had a thing like we want to work with Steve, and it's like okay, 
then maybe I should actually start, you know, and when I first started, I was like not, I was barely getting, you know, I was getting like a weekly fee to basically over and above. And I was like, it's tickled pink. And then, you know. Yeah, after a while, you start to see see the value. Wait a minute. Okay. Yeah. I think I actually, you know, yeah, you start seeing value in what you're doing. And it's like, all right. And then I wound up getting a manager. It's like 99. And then, and then I wound up leaving tracks. um, So how did, how did that come about? Uh, I wound up. Le- I I got a manager. Um, I wound up mixing uh, a band called Amen for Roadrunner. Mm-hmm. Mike Gitter uh, called me out of the blue. I was Ross first. Robinson too, right? Ross produced it. They had mixed the record a couple of times, actually with Joe Barisi once, who's who's now actually a yeah, huge a dear friend of mine. Uh, uh, we wound up <laughs> becoming friends because we bonded over the Amen experience, uh, and uh, yeah, I just wound up. They call me out of the blue because the singer Casey loved the Snapcase record, mm-hmm. and that's how that's how it always works. You know, work begets work. You know what I mean? Like some bands go, "Oh, look at the, who who did this record," and it's like. By the way, I'm gonna I'm gonna cut the story off real, real quick just to tell you about. To give you an idea of how important you were to like the hardcore independent music scene at the time. The probably the biggest hardcore show I went to at this time. It was here's every single band on the on the show. What you had produced their records. Are you talking about the Trocadero? Trocadero. Sh- so, Trocadero so, show. So was, I was that that show. So it was Snapcase, Dillinger, Kid Dynamite, Saves, Saves the, the day. day, and Buried Alive. Yep. <laughs> and it was sold out. It was. Yep. And it was like l- probably the first. Hardcore show I'd ever been to in like a real venue that was actually sold out and yep. Snapcase had kind of disappeared for a while. Yeah. So it was such a huge deal that they were playing. So just, I just had to, I, I wanted to share that with everyone. I do remember that. Didn't Dashboard Confessional open the show? No. No. Bird there Alive was, opened. Okay. Bird Alive opened the show. Okay. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's, I'm, I was at that show. And actually the thing that was really funny is we saw the Buried Alive guys and uh, we had the Reject the Sickness record, but it wasn't out yet. And we showed them the record, and they're they like, he did a way better job on your record than he did on us. Oh my god, really? <laughs> they were. I don't for some reason they. I feel like they weren't happy with the, that. Re- I don't think it was the songs or was the process or 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 whatever. But I I I love that record. I think it's so underrated. It's you know you know what it is. What I uh, I, I always laugh about this, and I laugh about this to this day. You know why? What, who said that? Did Vogel say that? I can't remember. I can't remember. I don't want to throw anyone, Vogel, anyone under the bus. I, Vogel was mad at me because I wouldn't let him drink in the studio. <laughs> I swear I swear to you. He's, Steve, why do you hate me? He was like so pissed <laughs> off because he wanted to like drink and get drunk before he did his vocals. To get amped up and to pissed off? To get amped off. up. And I'm like, dude, no. Like, you know, so I was like, I was like, I need you sober for this, you know? So... I think that's what it was. I think he was. I think Vogel was just pissed off that I wouldn't let him drink in the studio. It's tough. Artists, artists, vocalists are, <laughs> are 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 very difficult. But all right, so let's uh, take that caveat and go back to okay. the Amen record. So, all right. so yeah, I wound up mixing that record. We mixed at Electric Lady Studios, which was pretty awesome, and up in the upstairs, the, which was Hendrix's old apartment. Did you know Ross before this? I didn't. That was the first time we met. Okay, and. And that was it. Like we, Ross and I became fast friends right after that. And then while I was mixing the Amen record, he goes, "Oh, you don't have a manager?" And he just picks up the phone, boop, 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 calls up John Reese, and he goes, "Hey, 
this guy needs a manager. And John, John Reese like, like Warp Tour. John Reese. John Reese like Mayhem Festival. Yeah. John yeah. Reese. Yeah. Who manages Suicide Silence now? Yep. Yeah. Um, we did Mayhem. John Reese yeah, is, is exactly. the man. Of course. So next thing I know, he picks up the phone. He's like, "Hey, buddy. Yeah. So um, okay, send me your uh, discography, and uh, I'll get you more money. I'll get you better gigs." Click. <laughs> okay, I guess I have a manager now. That's, and that was literally it. That's crazy. So and, so what, when you're mixing a record. Uh, that I guess Roadrunner at the time was that when they were independent? Was that when the Warner? I can't remember. That was pre Warner. Okay, so but anyway, this is this is obviously a another step up. Mm-hmm. You're dealing with someone like Ross Robinson who has this big name. Well, then I have right, and then is it it, it like is he like breathing over your neck? Is he letting you do what you want? Is, no, he was letting me do my thing. Um, and then uh, the next thing I know, you know, we're. Uh, we're working on Glassjaw together, and then we worked on At the Drive-In. And uh, so, what did you do on Glassjaw? Because this is this is so everything you ever want to know. I mixed. Okay, so I, I this was Glassjaw is one of my favorite bands. You remember when we, me and my brother came by the studio when you guys? So I always tell the story. When we were at, oh at River Sound. Yeah, but it, well, somewhere in Manhattan. I don't. I don't remember. Yeah, it was Donald Fagan from Steely Dan's studio. That's crazy. Yeah, but we were so. We, this is the first day we met, I ever met Ross, and you guys were working on When One Eight Becomes Two Zeros, mm-hmm. which is my favorite song. And I remember just being in the studio, and I almost cried when I heard this. I was like, this is the most beautiful thing I've ever heard in my life. Mm-hmm. And I forgot that you came by that. That's yeah. right. I remember this now. Yeah. I was like, hey, buddy, yeah. how's it going? I know you. <laughs> um, and well, the funny thing about that day was they had a jam room set up in the other room, and me and Dallas and Daryl and Beck went there and started jamming. That. I remember that. And then, you know, they wound up. Um, do you know that song, Convectuoso? Yeah. Well, we recorded the original version of Convectuoso in that jam room. Like Just the like day while after, you were mixing? Yeah, like we, they set it up, and like probably the day after you guys were jamming there, they we recorded Convectuoso. And then they wound up re re putting it out on the reissue of the record. Of, oh shit! Yeah, yeah. But wasn't that song? It got like tied up in some legal. Well, situation? because they wanted to, they did a new version for Roadrunner. I mean, for Warner. Yeah. On on Worship and Tribute, and then uh, Roadrunner was like, "No, we own the rights because the recorded the, of that version we recorded." But then they wound up, so they wound up recording. When they put out the reissue of everything you ever want to know, they actually put the version of Convectuoso on there. So that record is the way it sounds to me is very interesting, mm-hmm. and in a, in a way, like it almost and try not to take this the wrong way, but it almost feels demo ish in a way, like mm-hmm. it's very kind of tight and compact and almost like, especially like the way the guitar sound, it's yeah. almost like as if it almost sounds like a live guitar sound. Yeah, sure does that make sense? I'm sure it was. I mean, like that's part of like Ross's thing. But it, but it, you know, some people go for the wall of sound. This is no, the opposite of no, that. No, the was, opposite of it. And again, as you know, I'm not producing it. Yeah. And I'm engineer. I'm just mixing it. Mm-hmm. And so Ross, you know, he was pretty heavy handed in that one. But you know, he had a vision of what he wanted it to sound like. So you know, I wasn't going to slick it up. Yeah. You know. I did certain things to give it a certain feel, but like, I mean, he loved it the way, the way it wound up coming out, you know? Well, but, I think the, the, the thing that's so apparent about that and why that band, even though at the time, I think it went over some people's heads, but ultimately became this real kind of cultural touchstone for that, mm-hmm. that style of music was that 
it feels so real. It's it, very real. It's 100% real. Yeah. Daryl's vocals, I remember a couple of times, literally, like, uh, what's that song? Oh, God, what's the name of the song? Uh, the, the end of the song, but he's screaming, this is what it yeah, feels, feels to like be, to be alone. Be, yeah. And he's literally, and I'm he's literally, like crying on I'm literally like in tears, like mixing the song. Yeah. Like it affected me so much when the first time I heard it, I was like, whoa, this is fucking heavy. You know, like, so and that's the thing with Ross and that, that, you know, I got that, I got that kind of, I think terminology from him as far as like that, that thing, you know what I was saying? Like there's no heavy button, but I learned a different kind of heavy from Ross, mm-hmm. that emotional heaviness of like, oh, you know, like where it doesn't have to be, the music doesn't have to be heavy at all, but like that vocal just dripping with that, just, you know, just yeah. gut-wrenching feeling. Finding those moments, like to me, it's almost like what, maybe what, what Ross was good at or, or pioneered within he's, our world. He's very good at it. No, but it almost reminds me of like probably what a, you say like a great director is trying to get at a, a, mm-hmm. a performance and a great emotional performance out of an actor yep. in a way, and even though it's obviously it's a little different because you're not theoretically, you're not, if you're a singer, you're not acting, but it, but it, it is getting to that place of, of a truth. Yeah. You know, and he got it a lot from, you know, another one of my favorite bands growing up is the cure. And he got it from that, like that and like any kind of gothy stuff, cure blonde redhead, like that kind of like emotional, just, just, it's hard on your sleeve. Yeah, very much so. And, you know, and then I wound up being involved in so many of those emo bands and, like, that that kind of scene, and I love that. I mean, like, I still, the you know, those Wonder Years records that I've done, the last three Wonder Years records, like, Soupy's vocals are just, like, you know, like, I push him to get that thing, but, like, he gets there pretty much without my help. Yeah. You know, like, a few times I had to, you know, I push him a little harder and push him a little harder, but... He's he's one of those guys that's just like he can do those kind of vocals. Like there's on the last record, um, the uh, is it Cigarettes and Saints? I'm not super familiar yeah, with that band. Uh, so yeah, but there's there's a moment where he, um, I mean he's he bro- like same kind of thing, and we had to stop, and he was literally on the floor in there in that vocal booth, like you know, breaking down because it was about a friend who died. Yeah, and uh, you know. It's hard sometimes you feel guilty sometimes getting someone to that point but then at the same time like you capture that on a recording and it's like you know it's there for all 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 time. How do you how, what like do you have a methodology is it is it are you kind of getting into some psychology is it a way of, of is to there a, to a degree but it's more about just like I'm not you know like I, I half the time it's like I don't necessarily know. Ross gets, it's a different thing because he'll, he does a lot of this thing that this technique from this, this other methodology called the work that he really delves into like the crux of the, of the problem or the heart of the matter. And I'll just, I'm just more, it's almost like feeling around for it. It's like, I'm not feeling yet. I don't believe it yet. It's like more about that. I want to believe what I'm hearing. It's just a gut. It's just a gut. And it's like, that's the thing that I do with everything. And it's never about perfect. Even like with guitar takes, it's like, I just want to believe what I'm hearing. Yeah. You know, I never want perfect because perfect sucks. Like perfect is like that same thing. And that's what the modern metal recordings, it's like so much of it. I, 
there's a there's a thing that you admire about it, the Swiss style precision of it. But at the same time, it doesn't make you really feel anything. Well, you did, know what did, I mean? did you read the article I wrote about uh, the the title of the article is how or Pantera ruined modern metal production? <laughs> no, I didn't, but I'd like to see that one. So yeah, I'll, well, you know, thing is crazy. So the the article actually was not to shit on Pantera. It no, was, it was I, actually, I get it. No, yeah. I, I cannot. I know where you're going with yeah, it so, right so, off the bat. So, so basically, I, I track the style of recording that they pioneered or perfected, and then it was basically that to me became, you know, Colin and Sneep came out of that with the yeah. manufacture and and but, and that stuff. But what I'm saying is, but those guys were not the problem either because if you right. listen to their records, they sound different, they sound sick. But then it's like that it's it's just if you just kind of track how that became you can see where, where it devolved into this well just, sameness sameness well, sameness, sameness well, here's and the antiseptic thing, but then you go but then you go with like the numa sugar record yeah is good because it's actually them playing in a room together yeah again and it's the first time since destroy race improve and i'm like oh thank god because that record is one of my all-time favorites and you know, and I appreciate the other stuff, Chaos Fear. I appreciate the newer stuff, but there was just some, this like, just kind of like monotone, like kind of like just, and I, it's that was what they were going for, and that's great. But to me, it's not interesting. It's not. It doesn't have any kind of like emotional impact. Whereas Destroyers Improve has tons of emotional impact to yeah. me. And the new record has has they 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 kind of stepped back towards that, which is like oh all right. Well, they have awesome. the bedrock. Like it's yeah. I think if you if you have the experience of existing in a certain framework of all right, we're, we can be a band in a room and do it that way. And then they were the ones that in a, in a way pioneered. Like they were at the forefront of help developing the uh, the drum kit from hell, mm-hmm. and they did that one EP. Or I was a I where it was all programmed. Yeah, uh, yeah. So they were kind of, and they were pro, they were the first man I ever saw that toured without guitar cabinets and just were using modelers. I saw them in Poland at some festival when I was I was in Europe with Dillinger uh, before Option Paralysis record. I just kind of went on the road with them to go, you know, go check out the new drummer, Billy, who hadn't recorded with the band yet, just kind of, like, get a feel for everything. And, like, we were going to, like, be demoing stuff on the bus. We wound up not really demoing stuff on the bus a little bit, but, you know. Um, Always sounds like a better diet. That <laughs> really yeah, is. It's like, oh, this will be great. We'll work on, we'll do pre-production before we get in the studio on the bus. Yeah, no. Especially on the European buses. Forget it, you know. Yeah, not enough space. Yeah. Um, but... It was fun, but then yeah, I remember seeing Mashuga. They played a festival in Poland. It was like te- Testament with them, and then Mashuga also played. They were a headliner, and standing on side of the stage, I was like, "This is bizarre," because they were on in ears. Yeah, you didn't hear a guitar. I heard guitar coming through the mains. That was it. Yeah, I was like, "What is going?" We on We toured here? them in two thousand five, and that's oh, wow. that, that's the, they were doing that back then. Um, and that was before they were on ears, and they were they would have to. So we go to like put some in the sh- wedges. Yeah, yeah. we go to some like shitty club in like Albuquerque with, with no like, wedges. Well, just bad, bad wedges, bad and wedges. they have to rely on that. But that was like I said, that's twelve years ago. They were they, they were doing this, and now that's the industry standard. I've seen Machine Head play with in ears and no cabins. I've seen Trivium, it um, Periphery. It is very common these days. And I imagine if you see any 
arena type pop I'm sure the live sound guys love it. Well, no, it's here's <laughs> it's what, like wow, no stage volume. This is awesome. Well, here's where I realized <laughs> it 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 works and doesn't work. I saw Trivium at Starland Ballroom, mm-hmm. and I it felt weird to me. Let's there. call it Hunkabunka. <laughs> I actually never went Come, to no, went really? to it when it was hunkabunka. No, neither did I because it was a it was a club, dance club. Dance right? club. Yeah, no, that's not my scene. But <laughs> <laughs> I just still find it's always funny. It's like Starland Bowling. Oh, you mean hunkabunka? <laughs> Starland only is only, only East Brunswick people know that though. <laughs> hunkabunka. That's about as Jersey as it gets. Uh, no, so I, I remember seeing him there, and you. I just noticed I I missed that. You know that's that thing you said, just pushing air off the stage and getting mm-hmm. those cabinets. Absolutely. But, but then I saw them at an amphitheater on Mayhem Festival, I, I believe, and it was incredible. Oh, with the because the monitors the, were great. Well, it's like, because the, the venue's so big that you're, you, it doesn't really matter what's what's coming off the stage. is so minimal in the grand scheme of the, the, right. the venue. So then it actually works. It was incredible. They never sounded better. So it's mm. it's to me, it's about what level you're at and what you're trying to get yeah, across. Yeah, and again, I, like I said, I, I, I don't want to appear to be like so like down on amp sims, but, have mean, you done a record with Amsims? I have, uh, not th- that I've actually produced. Mixed. Mixed. Yeah. Um, the Prong record I did, Ruining Lives. The second one I did with Prong, I just did Tommy's vocals and mixed, and they wound up. They were using Amsims on that, and they wound up sounding pretty Kemper. good. The yeah, this one. Yeah, this one was. I don't think it was like all whatever it was inside Pro Tools. It was like some Amsim inside Pro Tools. I think they used, um, but you know, but again, comes from the hands. Tommy's got just a oh, yeah. unbelievable lethal right hand, one of the best. You know, speaking so. of lethal, lethal right hands, not too long, I guess, after you got with management and one of the bigger records um, when you left Tracks East was you started working with Sepultura. Yes, Andreas. Well, yeah, that's a right hand right there. That's a right hand from hell <laughs> right there too. He's just incredible. Did you go to Brazil to work with him? I did. I went to Brazil, but I did three records with Sepultura and, uh, and then three of the rounds of pre-production. So I wound up going like six times just for Sepultura alone. And that was, was, did you do the first record with Derek or did you do the second second record? The first record with Derek was Howard Benson, I believe. And then, uh, I did the second one, the last one on Roadrunner. So all of a sudden, so, you, so, so you're working with Sepultura, then you do the Cure record, or do you do you one Cure record or two? No, uh, the Cure was just one. And that was working with Ross? Or? With Ross, right. I engineered and mixed the record. Okay. Does does Ross engineer at all, or does he always have an engineer? <sighs> he generally has an engineer. Ross, I, I like to say that Ross chooses to remain blissfully ignorant about engineering. But he does, if he had to, he, he could. He can, yeah. for sure. He just chooses not to. Well, it's so interesting to me about you think about him or you think about a Rick Rubin who is, you know, literally ha- literally hands off. Literally hands off. Uh, Ross is very hands on in a lot of other ways. Um, but there is a Ross Robinson sound. Yes. So, I mean, was, or at least, or at least maybe there's different. If you look at different eras, there's like okay, there's kind of a sound he had here, and then he's he kind of went from doing new metal to noisy stuff to I don't even know what, what what's what's going on now, but there is that. You know, um, I would almost say, how do we say? It's almost, if I called you naturalistic, <laughs> he's, he's the next level down. Oh, yeah, um, no, he, Ross is like, he, because I love, my thing is, for the most part, I love really big sounding drums, yeah. but I like them not from fake stuff. I like it from actually recording in a nice ambient room and like 
using room mics and like I love big room John Bonamy kind of like mm-hmm. big room where the thing's pulsing and just like the whole room is like you know I'm really into that Ross is the exact opposite he wants 70 style drums he wants to record them in the smallest space possible with no ambience whatsoever just dead and what's what, what do you think the the thought process is behind that um he just that's what he loves he yeah. grew up on that in like 70s records and then how he learned how to make records at, at indigo ranch in malibu was always i did one record with ross and indigo before it, it closed um uh the very 70s style studio and he learned from this guy richard kaplan who the owner of indigo was a really 70s moody blues that was their studio the indigo ranch it was the moody blues own studio and richard was like very much into like the 70s sound dead drums that's how everything they were all recorded the room itself the live room in indigo was like just carpeted mm-hmm. it was just really dead you know so. so i like some records and it maybe it's not just the drums but like i enjoy sometimes a really dry compact record so i'll give you an example like um weezer's first record mm-hmm. uh Coldplay's first record yep. and then their next records right so you listen to pinkerton and they big listen, drums yeah again it it's real washy and the same thing with the second uh of of Rush of Blood to the Head, yep. the second cold, but that one is real airy. So I, mm-hmm. I'm, in a sense, sometimes I'm really, I can go either way. Really I can go depends. either way too. I mean, like the way I have my setup here at, at my studio is um, the room itself actually is fairly dead-ish, but I also have the hallways designed as an acoustic chamber. So I always like put a mic in, in out in the hall and keep the door cracked so I can get like, if I want to dry up the sound, I can totally pull the, that hall mic down and like make the drums 70 style, mm-hmm. or I can make them bigger. So there's there, at least there's that option. Yeah. You know, but I know like um, uh, the Cure record was done at Olympic. Um, Where's in, that? In London. Uh, I lived in London for six months making that record. Were you there while they were writing as well, or is it just, or they have everything? They done? had written. I mean, Robert Robert Smith is a very, uh, he's a um, an obsessive uh, revisionist and like demoer, and like those songs have gone through like a couple of rounds of demos before we even gotten there. And then, like I said, we were there, literally there for six months. Had Ross Ro- worked with them before? No. So is that that has to be intimidating? Well, hey, friends, my name is Zach Lupiton. You may know me from the band Dust Bowl Revival, but I also host a music discovery podcast called The Show on the Road. For the last five seasons, I've been able to dive deep and have intimate chats with folks like the Lumineers, Andy DeFranco, Wolfpack, Keb Moe, Lake Street Dive, Bela Fleck, and more. So guess what? After 150 conversations with some of my favorite songwriters from around the world, we are bringing brand new episodes to the Osiris Network. New interviews and intimate acoustic performances will be coming at you this summer. And which episodes are coming next, you ask? I am Zach Goody, the lead singer for the band Smash Mouth. Our band is called Milky Chance. We are based in Berlin. My name is David Shaw. I sing and write songs with my band, The Revivalists. Trust me, these conversations go some wild places. So subscribe to the show on the road on Osiris, and we'll see you soon. Hey, this is Chris Swinney, formerly of the Ataris and currently host of That One Time on Tour, part of the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. 
Have you ever wondered what it's really like on the road? The highs can be euphoric, but the lows can be crushing. Join me every week as I chat with industry pros about what it's like living out their wildest dream and in some cases, their worst nightmare. Past guests of the show include members of NoFX, Pennywise, Bad Religion, and more. Listen and subscribe at SoundTalentMedia.com. What's up, everybody? I am Finn McKenty, host of the Punk Rock NBA podcast, part of the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. My podcast is all about doing what you love for a living, and every week I sit down and talk to people who have done exactly that. For example, musicians like Tommy from Between the Buried Me, Matt from Periphery, Lil Lotus and Shinigami, among many others, photographers, artists, designers, YouTubers like Glenn Fricker and Sarah Dietschy, and I unpack exactly how they got to where they are today with the goal of helping you do the same. So if that sounds cool, you can listen and subscribe at soundtalentmedia.com, and I'll see you there. No, uh, are you just are you just like you just going? You're I cool, like, was. I'm a bad motherfucker. It, well, <laughs> you know, it took it took a good it took a good uh, couple of weeks for me to get used to it, and then because I I loved the Cure growing up, and but it's almost too it's almost like no, but it was meeting, it was you know right, the, no, the but Power that's Rangers I, or but something. But that's what I mean. Like it took two back. It took me about two weeks to get to to calm down and go okay. I, I'm here. This yeah. is fine. Because, you know, at the time I was still living in Jersey, right, it was right before I moved. Um, and the first, you got to remember, the first week I was there, um, we were there in Studio One. Eric Clapton was in the other room in Studio Three with his band. And Bjork was also there working on her, that, that acapella record with Spike Stent. Like, so... This is going on all like we're and they had a cafeteria there and they cook for you. And dinner was like, oh, seven o'clock dinner. Okay. And like, and I'm looking around and I'm me and Ross and the cure are all at one table, you know, and Robert's like sitting next to me like, Steve, could you pass the foul sauce? And I'm like, (laughs) okay. You know, had to like be like the dog shaking the water out of you. He was like, like, okay, try to like not... (laughs) freak out you know what i mean for a couple of weeks and you know and eric clapton and his band are at another table and bjork's at another table see i just assume bjork just recorded in a spaceship <laughs> so I, I definitely been like me i'm a little i think well at least for this record her. she came down from her spaceship to record this record with spike stent at olympic but where she was mixing it at olympic but um yeah it, you know and i'm just like i'm just some kid from jersey like what what am i doing here so but But, so this is this real kind of um i guess crossroads moment right where your career was on one path and all of a sudden now you're you're graduating to the quote-unquote big leagues yeah you know and you're you're experiencing another world but from that point on it's not like you went on all all right now i'm working with the cure now i'm gonna go with the foo fighters i'm gonna be you too you kind of stayed kind of in a, you went in different paths. Yeah, um, it wasn't exactly the same. Well, thing. I went from cured. I went from the cure to Limp Biscuit. What did you do on Limp Biscuit? Um, By the way, I just said Limp Biscuit. Limp Biscuit. <laughs> <laughs> Again, what was with Ross? It was engineering. It was the unquestionable truth that one that EP that came out. I haven't even heard that. Yeah, well, exactly. They they released it with almost no fanfare, according to Fred. That was the intentional. Mm-hmm. That was that was intentional. It's for the real fans. I, I don't know, but. It was an album that wound up being an EP. Mm-hmm. We recorded an album's worth of material, but they only wound up finishing five songs and making an EP. But yeah, I went from that to that. 
and then to this other this other I basically took like a year and a half off of producing I did I went work with Ross on the cure the cure thing was actually originally I was only going to fill in I was filling in for Mike Frazier who did a lot of engineering with Ross because he was working on I think Ingve Malmsteen mm-hmm. and he couldn't get off so I wound up working on the pre-production at Olympic in London. Uh, and then like two days in, Ross is like, oh, those guys really love you. Robert's going to ask you to stay. And Robert, l- the next day, Robert asked me if I would stay to make the record. And I was like, uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> and you don't say no to Robert Smith, you know? So, And I actually had this other band, who I'm not going to name, but that I was actually supposed to produce for Maverick, mm-hmm. like big budget record. And I wound up blowing it off to to do the cure because I wanted to. Yeah, man, that's a, experiences like that. Uh, yeah, don't, don't. I just yeah, exactly. You just don't, you know how? You know, are you kidding me? And this is you're talking about working with one of the most iconic bands and working at one of the most iconic recording studios in history of recording studios, Olympic. You're talking about, you know, Led Zeppelin one two. You're talking about Rolling Stones, uh, Her Majesty, uh, Her Satanic Majesty's Request, Goat's Head Soup. Now, did you did you feel Jimi Hendrix? But, are you experienced? But like, starting in one place, and now all of a sudden you're getting to be in some of the most um, most famous studios. Yeah. Do you feel like, oh, that place makes a difference, or this place? Oh, that's where this board or this is. The it, board is, does the, the. I mean, I I feel like there's there's a thing to like you know a place and the vibe and like, you know, you feel the go like you know when I made rec- when, I, when I worked at Electric Lady. When I worked at Olympic, when I worked at Sound, made made, record, made a couple of records at Sound City. Mm-hmm. You know, you feel the ghosts. What records did you do at Sound City? Uh, I did uh, part of the He Is Legend record at Sound City. I did Static Lullaby at Sound City. I did an EP with a band called No Motive at Sound City. I did, I've done various sessions over so the years it, so, at Sound so City. So, so it really is kind of the uh, the history baked into the walls. For sure. And the, you know the gear does the gear doesn't hurt. Yeah. You know, you know me being at Olympic, which is like I said, all those records and like, you know, the Beatles actually recorded. I mean, the Beatles are my all-time favorite band. And the Beatles recorded "All You I'm Need Is you, Love." They, they they that was like one of the only songs they didn't record at Abbey Road. They recorded "All You Need Is Love." It's at Olympic, and I sat down on the, like the Bosendorfer that supposedly John Lennon used to record piano for all you need is love and i'm playing all you need is love at that studio on that piano freaking myself out (laughs) you know like and um and then on top of it we brought in a console i can show you the pictures later on on my um iphoto we brought in the console for the cure record that uh this emi console that was at abbey road originally there was only two of them that ever existed, and it was the very console that Dark Side of the Moon was recorded and mixed on. That's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> so, and I only, because I'm such a dork about recording and recording gear, that that's how we came to get that console, because they had one of those EMI, back in the day, all the studios back in the 60s, they made their own gear. Like Abbey Road EMI, like made their own gear. How? What do you mean they made like they made their own compressors? They made and their own consoles. They consoles? made their own compressors. That was they they their engineers. They built their Decca recording studios. Motown, famous Motown studio. 
they they built their own gear. So it's literally like a custom one of a kind. Custom one of a kind gear. Hmm. EMI Abbey Road was EMI Studios. That's what it was originally known as. It was on Abbey Road, but it was EMI's own. They were EMI Studios. Mm. They built their own gear. They had so the, these old EMI consoles. That there's only a few of them now, and they go for like ridiculous. That that console that we worked on, on the Cure, just sold for, I don't know, two and a half million dollars. Like ridiculous, something just preposterous amount of money. Yeah. Um, and those those. Those boards have a sound. They have an absolute sound. And the we on the pre-production, there was an EMI desk down in, in Olympic 2 that we like fell in love with. It was just like this is it was underneath like a tarp. And I was like, oh, we need to grab this. We need to use this. And I was like, I, I pu- pulled up the thing and I'm like, oh my God, this is a TG desk. Like I knew the desk and I was like, we have to, we brought it into the studio and we started using it. And Ross is like, this is amazing. And I'm like, yeah. So we were supposed to track the cure at a different studio at Air Studios, which was George Martin's studio, Air Studio and Piccadilly Circus. We wound up canceling it, going and booking Olympic because of the EMI desk. Mm-hmm. That EMI desk wound up being already reserved for another guy this guy youth was was record using the the desk so i said to robert i said do you still talk to mike hedges this is how much of a dork i am with these kind of things i said do you still talk to mike hedges who produced the first two cure records and he goes i haven't talked to him in a long time but yeah we still may keep in touch i was like well he has one of those desks in storage because he just closed his studio in france and the stu- that console is sitting in storage. So I, he literally, I said, drop him, call him or, or email him. He, dr- he got in touch with Mike Hedges. And sure enough, he had this console and we rented the console from him and brought it in. T- and like two days later, it was in the studio. It's crazy. <laughs> anyway. So that was, that, that was your time with The Cure. That was my time with The Cure. Sorry to go off on this tangent. No, I think, listen, I think this is the, the, the real audiophiles, the real production nerds, uh, you know, just fans of, of of music this is in in many ways this this snapshot in time i I think a lot of us look at pop culture what we think of as as pop culture as this thing that's continuous but it may have been this thing that just kind of had this 50 year you know uh 70 year arc where there was a peak and there was this and we're kind of you think we're in a valley now no, I, I, I well, you think, just said well, there's peaks, there's peaks, there's valleys. So are we in a valley? Well, well, the valley <laughs> assumes it's going to come back up. I'm not saying yeah. that it might have, it might be a bubble more than okay. Meaning, meaning that where we're at now is a place where there's, in a, in a sense, if you went into a record store probably in the '60s, mm-hmm. there were only so many records in the store. There was only so much recorded music being put out that you had access to that was really out there. Whereas now there's infinite, infinite, everything. It's there's true. infinite television shows. There's infinite music. There's infinite YouTube videos. There's infinite books. There's everything. And there is that there is the, the universe, our creative universe has expanded exponentially. Yeah. And that's a great thing. But, the problem is how do we make people aware of it? But that's all right. So that, that goes back to my other point. When you have so much of everything, mm-hmm. it makes it much, much more difficult to actually get someone's attention with something um, because at least if you look at pre-internet 
era, most of the people were looking at the same thing. So mm-hmm. everyone was looking at Ed Sullivan, so they knew if something came out. Everyone, yeah. there was only a couple radio stations. There was only one MTV. There were these hubs of, and to get to there, there usually was a filtration point to figure out what was the best, what was, and I'm sure all of it wasn't the best, but whatever. There was There were gatekeepers who, at least at a certain time, did have some vested interest in the creative, you know? Yeah. Um, and so... I think now, and I, I make, and I'm sure I've, I've probably mentioned this on on the show before, but if we did have the next John Lennon sitting somewhere, you know, playing in a coffee house, in, How do we in, know? yeah, so, somewhere in, in Newcastle, would anyone give a shit? Because they'd be like, well. I mean, how many uh, Facebook likes does he have? How many Twitter followers does he have? And I, if he has I, 17, I, people are like, well, no one really gives a shit, so who cares? Yeah. I don't know. I mean, to me, <laughs> there's that whole aspect of it. But to me, it's it's such a hard thing because I'm always of the, of the thing of like, if you make something that's so undeniable, you yeah. know, that people have to take notice. Yeah, I mean, and 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 I think that still that still happens. And I I think that 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 gets lost so much, and that's what I mean about sounding like the old guy, like the oh these now these you know talking about the production and like me being that trying to sound like this crotchety old guy going, man, the the way these these kids make these records nowadays, everything sounds too sterile. But there there's there's a gr- degree of truth to that, and and that's why I still choose to make records with real. You know, with real amps, you know, if I can make record, if I can put records to, to tape, I can't, you know, if budget allows, I'll put it to tape, you know, like I, I really feel like there's a value in learning your craft Yeah, is so important. And that goes from, it stems from everybody and it stems from the artist and it, it, it carries over to the producer it's the artist learns his craft, learns how to play his instrument, learns learns everything he can, absorbs enough, you know, and, and comes up with something unique and his own that that something speaks to his voice. And the producer's job is to capture that and to coax and learn how to coax a good performance out of the artists and you know, telling them, all right, now I think we can get it better. Let's let's all right, let's. I know we can beat it. Let's go. Here we go. Come on. Like learning how to coax the right performance out of the artist rather than just going once. Okay, that's good. And then Cut looking at a goddamn screen and just clicking on a mouse and like, just what is that? That's nothing. That doesn't, that, there's no feeling in that, in, in, in moving stuff around with a, with, you know, with a mouse. Yeah. It's, it's definitely, I can definitely speak to some experiences I've had and I, I can't, can't, can't throw anyone t- under the bus too no, far. No, for but, sure. But, but I mean, how many, you know. How many, I'm sure you've dealt with it more in more recent times where you're recording. I, mean, I don't know how, you know, when you track the Vegas nerve stuff and it's like track, 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 and then sit there and watch him look, watch the producer engineer, like look at the screen for 10 minutes. Okay, hold on. Uh, well, yeah. Oh, no. luck, luckily with, with, with that album was kind of put together very hodgepodge. We didn't have anything too, too difficult. And actually we, we tracked it live. Oh, that's great. Um, but we had to replace a lot of the oh, rhythm Oh, that's right. Guitars. You told me you tracked live. Yeah, we, we tracked live. That's so great. One of the songs on the record, thankfully, we were able to keep one song where all the um, basic tracks are all from the live. They're just comped from the... Right. Wasn't that some studio in like South Jersey or something you recorded? North Jersey. North Jersey. Yeah. Uh, and the studio had all these problems with um, the routing. Okay. And he never did 
any um, any DIs or anything, so we couldn't really right. use the original ones. So I had to redo a lot of it. So okay. all the bass drums was from the originals, right? And then I I ended up doing the guitars. Yeah, the live the thing then is just so killer. Yeah, I mean, when you, luckily, when it can be done. But it's the I think it's the band, like that band is more of a rock band, so it it sonically it it makes sense and there's it can be a l enough rough around the edges that it actually mm -hmm. makes sense when when that band does another record i definitely want to do it live for real for real, for real. Do, yeah for real do it live and then obviously whatever fix whatever you have to and yeah. keep keep as much as you can because uh, i just did this uh, down in brazil i just did this um i gotta start mixing it i just uh tracked this band they're called hue uh it's spelled like huey h-u-e-y but they pronounce it down there as hue mm-hmm all instrumental, three guitar players, but all instrumental, no vocals. We tracked the whole thing live. We tracked the whole record. And talking about back, go back to the early days when I was saying track a record in, in you know a week or whatever. I tracked the whole record in five days. Yeah, it's awesome. Well, you don't have to do <laughs> no, no vocals, vocals. <laughs> no vocals. But and we tracked literally everything live. Like I went for keeper. Is it like on shreddy? Everything. No, it's kind of like stoner rock, like doomy okay, kind of so, like. So it it. it works to that it aesthetic works to that aesthetic but it was it was a pleasure you know what i mean yeah hey man well it's it's i you know kind of looking at it and understanding what we were trying to do at vegas nerve and but also understanding if we were to do a new god forbid record it that style of metal it's it it, it doesn't really work i think or i think it would it be could. It, it could but it, it like could. i'll give an example so you know the band The Haunted? Of course. So they did a record, I think it was called Versus, and mm -hmm. they tracked it live. Tracked it live, yeah. And it, for that style of metal, it, you know, I, I see what they're going for, but I think in a way our ears have become accustomed to expecting certain cert, certain things, and sometimes it works. I don't know. I just think it, it, it depends yeah, on the band. It uh, does. Um, but I mean, you know. I've seen you guys. I used to see you guys play live, you know, and yes, you sounded. But that was. But but what I'm saying is, there's also the different eras of the band. Like true pre. Like we kind of went for this. You know, we changed our whole mentality, and 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 I think a lot of those we were influenced by who was around us. We heard, you know, that that Killswitch record. I think affected a lot of the bands in our scene because yep. it it raised the bar. And it was like if your production was not this pristine then you felt like you were behind the ball you know it was it was, mm. very, it was a very much keeping up with the joneses type of a situation um and maybe listen maybe that was uh a lack of conviction on our part or being could be yeah there's a that's a possibility like i said i mean i saw you guys a couple times live where you were like sounded tight as fuck you sounded awesome and it's like okay well if you if you got to that point where you rehearsed those songs so well that you played that shit now take that and write a record and rehearse it to the point of like, like play it every day for four months straight. Like you were play it on, like you were touring literally yeah. play the record every day, this whole record and then go into the studio. Well, I think, and then why couldn't you, you know what I mean? That's what I'm, that's, that's my point. I think there were certain times in the band where that was more possible than others. And sure. I, that's me saying that as a, as diplomatically as, as, as okay. possible. <laughs> um, we'll leave it at that. That's fine. But you uh, follow what I'm saying is what, what I'm saying is not just you, any band. It's like, if you could get to the point where you could say, literally write a record. And then before you go in the studio, like take two, three months, like basically tour the record, but just play the record, the new record, tour it. And like, play it every day ever together 
and you know even go on a tour go on a small tour and play the record out live front to back brand new you know what i mean and yeah i think get that, it to that great. point where you're that tight and then go in the studio and track it live yeah and you know overdub on top of it adds other shit if you want to add other thing great but the the genesis of it that live that connection of the five people four or five however many people in the band all like just all together as one and living in it's a, it becomes this music becomes a different thing it's living and breathing it becomes this living entity yeah and it's like if you can get to that point man that's just like the best thing ever well, brother i'm i'm on board more than anyone <laughs> the, yeah. qu- the question is i think the the audiences have come to value that less i mean you talk about most pop music the actual music part of it is synthetic mm-hmm. um if you talk about you know, I work these festivals, these like EDM festivals, and it's a hundred thousand people outside for someone that might just be pressing a space bar. Mm-hmm. They don't care that that it's not live. The the audiences and some of these bands that are even in our world, yeah, you go but, see, see them, and it's how much of it is tracks, how much of it is it actually playing, yeah. and the people don't care. They, and that's that's the thing is, the artists a lot of times will respond to what the audience demands and if the, if, the, sure. if the audience doesn't demand for more i don't know if, if artists will but you know it's just like any any style of music you know it's happened before and it's, it always goes in waves and i think that the trend will go towards it goes from synthetic to organic and it but has can, it has gone back and forth but here's the thing we're we're talking about self-driving cars are going to be coming out i know artificial intelligence you know you're going to have a robot security (laughs) you know you know uh i think we're entering a new era of technology and the the, our symbiotic relationship with technology is entering a new phase and and i i personally do not think everything is a cycle i think some things sometimes you enter a realm you have not been before right but those kind of things we're not dealing with creative forms we're not dealing with art Mm -hmm. you know what i mean self-driving cars and like all the other you know the automation Home automation. Hey, say, and all that say that. Stuff. Say that to the coder and the 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 engineer. They, I'm sure they think what they're doing is creative. Well, and there's artistic. creative. That's that's a different side of it. But I'm saying like, you know, a painting. You know what I mean? Like, someone's gonna. That comes from someone's like just gut, their soul, their whatever. You know, it's the. You can't manufacture that. You know what I mean? And to me, music is the same, you know, expression is expression. Mm-hmm. And it can, you know, there there can be forms of EDM that are very expressive. No, no doubt. But it always goes back and forth. Even like, even today in movies and stuff like that, you know, I think there's even a step back from a lot of the excessive CGI. Even like the way that, that Star Wars movie was. Like, you know, they shot it, they, they used digital but they went back to shooting it with like models and like and big sets and like because they wanted to get to it to feel a certain way. Well, they also wanted to feel like they were replicating something that existed in a certain time period. True. I don't know if, if that wasn't Star Wars. Would yeah. they would they have used those same techniques unless they were trying to kind of utilize these physical world um, uh, tactics to replicate something that existed? I think the the there's only a few people that actually have that ability. So you look at a guy like Christopher Nolan, someone who does his best to not use 
uh, right, uh, but, CGI, but he has the power. He, he has, has the, the power to do it, but again, you know, why do so many people love his movies? Well, but you know what I mean? Like, obviously, he's a he, great he's a great filmmaker, but yeah, point he's, a, is, he's a genius. <laughs> but here's the point. But the point is that I feel like that technology always, you know, in the 80s, same thing. It, there's always, there's a, there's a wave of like all the 80s stuff with all the synths mm-hmm. and everything like that. And like, and then people got away from that and then they started playing more organic feeling music. And I feel like it always, it does fluctuate back and forth. I know what that. you mean. I know what you mean. There, I mean, there's a, there's a big, uh, you know, I've, I've noticed and I'm sure you would pr- probably appreciate this, like a, I guess a little bit more in the 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 hardcore world or the independent world like guys like Kurt Ballou really taking off and that to me he is very much in the tradition of of the the way you record mm-hmm. I, I don't know how well you know him or if you guys come from the same school but but I'm it makes me really happy that that style of recording is kind of becoming more more popular and people are going like you said not using the modelers and getting in a room and making loud amps and real drum sounds yeah and, and there's no reason why it can't be competitive with like the the really technical you know stuff you know there's still you can still i, I i'm not like anti like using drum samples yeah you know well the thing is i noticed with the with you with suicide silence is to me that's an evolution of steve evitts because i don't i, I don't think if you if you would have recorded them 15 years ago, that would probably, the end product would be a bit different where that's to me, Steve Evitz making a quote unquote modern metal sounding record, but it's right. still you. Like what, what's that? Like what's your approach to something like that? And especially, in, and I guess something like that, cause you could record it, but let's say you record uh, a record with a band like that and then they send it off to, you know, like Mark Lewis or Jason Sukoff or, or Sneep, then the end product is going to be a lot different. But mm-hmm. what about when you, you get to kind of control it from the beginning to the end. Well, I mean, the the Black Crown, you know, Zeus makes that. Yeah. You know. Um, but then the You Can't Stop Me. You Can't Stop Me, I mixed. Right. Um, but, you know, again, I'm doing what the band wants. Yeah. So they're, to sound they're like. giving you. Their... I'm not going like, oh, I'm anti this, I'm anti that. Yeah. And like, you know, like if, if a band is really adamant about they want certain things to, to hit a certain way. And it's like, okay, great. You know, like, but it's my job to make sure that the emotional truth or the, the feeling behind it is still there. Because if it is, then they can put kick samples, snare samples on top of it. And it's not going to matter. It'll give it that modern edge that, you know, some kids were the, the band wants or that the, you know, the fans want or whatever. But, uh, my job at that point is done because I captured what I need to capture. Yeah, a drum sample is not going to change the emotional resonance of the of the sound. Uh, you know what I mean? Of, of the of the meaning behind the music or the feeling behind the music. Sample's a sample. It's yeah, not, it has no a sample doesn't have emotional resonance. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? But as long as the the impact is there and I, the feeling I get from when, like you said, when you hear a record and you go and it just yeah. if it has that. Fantastic. If there's drum samples on it, who cares? I don't care. Yeah. So, so looking through all your, all your stuff and kind of seeing the, the, the later period, you know, is mm-hmm. like, A, it seems like you're as busy as ever. <laughs> yep. <laughs> which, which I think is, 
a, a testament to to your talent and having you know having a skill set that is the fact that you you do come from a, another era that here's the truth you're going to have certain skills that and a certain uh philosophy that someone else that didn't come from that world is going to have and that's well, just so, that, so you are literally a dying breed, my friend. <laughs> Thank you. No, no, I'm, <laughs> no, no. But I know what you're right? saying. You like, can't well, there's, that. there's engineers now that like literally have never recorded a drum set before, and it's like it blows my mind. They call kid himself calls a record, self a recording engineer. It's like, oh, I'm an engineer. I'm a producer. It's like, do you know how to like mic a drum kit? And they don't. Yeah. And they just think like, oh, I'm an engineer. I just you know pull up drum kit from hell. It's like that's not engineering. Like, <laughs> no, no, but uh, that's but, operating. A, that's a computer operator. But I see some of the stuff you're doing, and it's and it's just as relevant, or more so, uh, than some of the stuff you did back in the day. So there's this kind of continuity, and and you've probably seen a lot of producers fall off, right, in those years who could not keep up with the work and could not uh, keep the, st the the steady flow. That's been like yeah, this. Yeah. Well, again, it's part of it is a like adapt or die you know you have to you know if i just made records on tape and like i know other people that like were anti pro tools forever some bigger names i'm not gonna name names but they were like anti pro tools and then they finally like had to, after like the work dried up from they're like okay i better learn pro tools like you know and they were too behind the ball yeah or you know i mean i'm assuming they're still getting out there but like it's it's kind of crazy to me. Like you have to, someone you can't just be like I can't just be this uh, luddite, you know, and just like only want to record on tape. I would love to just trust me. I would love to do only tape because how, how when's the last time you recorded on tape? Uh, about three weeks ago in Brazil. <laughs> <laughs> what about out here? Is there anything any people we, we would know? The last time I tracked a tape here, actually, believe it or not. The last time I tracked a tape was the Lifetime record. When Lifetime got back together, this is this is ten years ago now. Um, the, you, 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 it was ten years in America is the last time you did a record on tape. Completely the tape, or no, uh, partial, even partially I, the tape. I, I, don't, I don't know. No, you, you that's me. not true. Well, no, I engineered a bunch of records for Ross Robinson. Does like he when, all? Does he always do tape? He tr tracks the drums to tape, and then. Yeah, so the last time I tracked drums to tape was well, the last thing I tracked for with Ross that I actually tracked the drums for was the Sepul last Sepultura record that he did, the Mediator, two two Sepultura records ago, so like three years ago. That's the last time I tracked drums to tape here in the states. Mm -hmm. But I've tracked in Brazil a bunch of times. So we're we're starting to get a little bit long in the tooth on this, okay, this conversation, sorry. which is no, no, this is. I knew it was going to be like this, and, yeah. I'm, and I'm glad you've given me the yeah, giving yeah. your 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 valuable time because I think when listen, I talk to people like you who've uh, the the level the, the the quality and the quantity is is pretty over overwhelming. So without literally you know doing some like five part uh, uh, audio documentary series, it's it's impossible to kind of hit everything because I'm. I'm such a nerd. Like I would literally go with you with like every record. All right, tell me about this. You know, I, w I yeah. would do that. That's how much of an asshole I am. But I wouldn't mind doing it. But I'm sure the fans will get bored after like one episode. Well, well who knows? <laughs> I, I I I can't say that. I I'm just I'm a nerd about this stuff. And and when you love 
a record, when you love a movie, or at least when I do, I want to know, oh, who's the, ed- oh, the who did the editing? How did they do mm-hmm. this? And you know, I, w- I want to know how the um, how the donuts sure. are made. But you know, I think it's really important we talk about your your relationship with Dillinger Escape Plan, okay. especially because. They are officially wrapping their career up. Are you going to one of the last shows? Uh, I think I'm going to fly in for the Terminal 5, one of the Terminal 5 okay. shows. Because um, you've, the, the you've done thing, every The only record. thing I'm torn about is that the final show is the 29th. And I think my girlfriend and I want to stay in New York for New Year's. But the Misfits show is in L.A. the next night. <laughs> so I'm a little torn. It's <laughs> a lot. It's a lot. But I talked to Greg, and Greg's like... Yeah, we're playing that show, and I'm flying back the next day for the Misfit show. It's like, ugh. I mean, do you need to stay in New York for New Year's? Who cares? What are you gonna do? Go to Times Square? No. You want? No. You want that? No, I don't. Wanna, <laughs> I don't want to do that. But my girlfriend might. So we'll see. But guess what? I mean, I know Trump's president, and New York might not be there next year. But you know, just take. The, I think New York will the be chance. there before before LA will be here. We might, we might we might have made the wrong we might have picked the wrong side here to be out here. Hey, you know what? I'll take the bet on the West Coast over the East Coast right now with all the uh, during hurricane season. Oh, I know. I just talked to my aunt. My aunt's down in Florida, in like in the in the hot zone. Yeah. So is my so is my my niece and stuff. So I I I, I totally get that. But I want to talk about your relationship with with Dillinger because you've done every single Dillinger record. Is mm-hmm. that is that correct? That is correct. And how do a how do you guys not get tired of each other? <laughs> well, f- thankfully, it's only a, it's only been every couple of years. So yeah, but I can, I I can only imagine that that has to be one of the most intense bands to work with. Yep, <laughs> you know it and, is. And and for some reason, why do you think they've never said? Hey, fuck you! We're gonna go with Ross, or we're gonna go work with uh five Steve Albini, or or you know, yeah. Because I'm sure um, they probably had offers from, or you know, other like big time producers kind of seeking them out and things like that. Yeah, I don't know. They just uh, we just kind of always understood each other. Ben and I have always understood each other to the point. You know, we're like brothers. We fight like brothers a lot of times. Yeah. But you know, there's always an understanding there. Is he gonna? Do you think he's gonna still keep making music or? I don't know. It's a good question. I think he'll always be and creative doing something. Mm-hmm. Did they know that the record was going to be the last one they were working on it? Yes, yeah. and I was sworn to secrecy. Okay. So. <laughs> well, I can I can I can imagine. So, um, what do you think about the way they've kind of evolved over over those years? Uh, yeah. I mean, it's it's always been a it's an ever changing thing with them. Um. You know, just also for the fact of the different members over the years, too, you know. I mean, I was there from the very beginning before they even called Dillinger. And, uh... Was it know, Arcane? Arcane, exactly. <laughs> I remember see, literally seeing in the, like, the appointment book at Tracks East, like, Arcane, Ben Wyman with his phone number. I was like, who's this? And, he, and, and, and asked, because what it used to be, when you were talking about, like, oh, they used to book you, book Tracks East, and, like, if a band requested me, so... I would see like the book and Eric Rachel would write in the book and it would say it were arcane and there was an S. So I knew <laughs> I was on that session and I was like, Oh, okay. What's this? And then, you know, I heard them and you know, like at first I was like, they like dead guy. Okay. <laughs> you know, that was the original thought. But then, you know, there were, there were moments even on like the stuff of Cleopatra sling, like on the first EP, like that you could see that they had their, they were already like, 
there was an influence there, but they were already for, forging their own identity. And then obviously once the running board EP came out, then all bets were off and they had their own thing and that was, they were off and running. Um, but, uh, yeah, I've just watched it evolve from, you know, from Ben being like not confident as a guitar player. And like, he was almost like second fiddle to John Fulton, even though Ben was like the songwriter, but John was like the real technical. I heard a story and you tell me if this is wrong. Maybe this is like an urban legend around New Jersey that John Fulton mastered the guitar. And then just like, he's like, I've mastered the guitar now. I'm, I'm done with this. He's a robot for sure. <laughs> he showed me actually like some of the first like sweep techniques. Like he, mm -hmm. he showed me some stuff and Ben showed me some stuff. So yeah, you know, yeah, he was a, he was a crazy, crazy good guitar player so does and he work for nasa or like apple now or i don't something? know what he does I, I think he's a some sort of computer programming guy i would expect yeah so he's definitely he's definitely got some sort of part of his he's part android or something i'm not you know fully convinced but i'm pretty sure they are uh, they are out there but then when john left um ben was really like nervous and he just sat there and just woodshedded and practiced and practiced and practiced because he had to like a lot to live up to when Calculating Infinity came out because he did all the guitars on the record. Generally, um, on all the records... Fulton did all the guitars? No, no, no. But, I'm saying on Calculating Infinity, Ben did all... Ben, Fulton was already gone. Yeah, but okay. he had a lot to live up to, so he really practiced and really got to his playing to a different level. And... Just watching them evolve from that, and then like incorporating the programming stuff, and you know, the rock stuff, a, and the rock it. stuff, and then you know the the patent EP was a different thing because that opened up a world of possibilities. It showed it was a good way for them to transition to having Greg in the band. Did you track Mike Patton? I didn't track. That was the only thing I didn't track. Uh, Did I that, mixed you, that. That piss you off? No, I was in LA working uh, at the time. What was I working on? I don't even remember now. Was it so you didn't record the anything on that? Just 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 mixed it. I just mixed that one. Oh, okay. I tracked some extra guitar at Showplace where we mixed. Uh, on the that was it, and Patton came for the mixing, and uh, you know because he wanted to be involved. That's a game changer. Yeah. That's literally like uh, what was that uh, in in Bill and Ted's uh, Excellent Venture where they're like. Hey, uh, yeah. we should get Eddie Van Halen in the band. Yeah. It's like, well, how can we get Eddie Van Halen if we don't have the most excellent video? But that's that's basically getting Eddie Van Halen to play in your band. It's mm -hmm. pretty fucked up. Yeah. It's not no, fair. No, it was crazy. Um, <laughs> but that opened, it showed everybody a different side of the band. And then bringing Greg in, it was like, okay. You know, because I think if they went right from Calcutta Infinity to Miss Machine with Greg on vocals... They would have lost a lot of their hardcore fans. Yeah, but because they did the Patton EP, it opened up everybody's yeah, Pat, mind a little bit. Patton tends to do that. Like I saw Dead Cross open up for Melvin's and Napalm Death not that long ago. And I'll be honest, outside of just loving watching uh, Lombardo play, I wasn't that into it. Especially the singer was very like kind of rough. It was tough yeah. to listen to. Yeah, and then you hear Patton, and all of a sudden you're like. This band is, is pretty amazing. <laughs> yeah. I mean, though, that, that Dead Cross uh, album is interesting because, like, that's the first time Patton, Patton basically revisited the character that he did on, on the... Dillinger. On, yeah. the, on the Irony EP on Dead Cross. He basically, like, that's the first time I've heard him do those kind of vocals since 
the irony album so it was really cool to, like, to hear that again it's awesome it's yeah. it's killer so uh, so what's what's next for uh for steve evans um what's next for me uh i've just i've got to mix all the stuff i just did down in brazil that's what i'm doing now um i did uh this band Hue down there and then i also tracked a new song with this rock band called ego kill talent which i did a full album with them there a couple of years ago which is awesome uh i've got that i've got to mix the new the devil driver oh the country oh, outlaw country yeah. record that's gonna be interesting yep that's what we've been we've been working on it since january um i still have one guest vocal to do which they i don't think they've announced yet so i can't say who it is under wraps your secret safe um, here but it's gonna be awesome it's gonna be so much fun Oh right on. Um, we did a bunch of we did a bunch of cool uh, a bunch of cool guest vocals. Um, I don't know if he announced who was on it, so I don't know if I can say it on. That's there. fine. Okay. Blabbermouth will let everyone know soon. So. Yeah, there's a lot of cool guest vocals on it. There's guest vocals basically on every on just about every track with Des. I tracked all of Dez's vocals down at his place, which is why I got that duet. Ooh. I had to go down to Marietta to Dez's. Dez has a like. Thank a, you, Dez. Yeah, thanks, Dez. Uh, had a has a vocal booth set up. He has a spare bedroom, which he has like a studio, but it's really just a, like he's got one of those whisper rooms, one of those vocal ISO booths. And then I brought my laptop and a duet down, and we just tracked the vocals that way. It was awesome. Do you use any like compressor or anything? Yeah, or? I this little rack I brought with my little Neve preamp and a compressor. See, I need to take a picture of all this stuff so I can actually start learning how to really record at home. Yeah, you know, well, was, and you can ask me anytime. You, I always you, feel bad. I always feel like people are like, you know, this information costs money. <laughs> Oh, God. <laughs> that's that'll be a thirty thousand dollar consulting fee yeah but you know the thing here's the thing like that's the thing it's funny you bring that up but like i get people writing me and like i've done a bunch of these things i've done a few few recording seminars and i did this thing on creative live yeah i saw that on getting guitar tones people always ask me it's like well what setting would you use for recording like a heavy vocal and it's like what setting there is no setting <laughs> But that's what I'm saying. Like, uh, there, there's secrets, but there's no secrets. It's yeah, like, but here's the thing. I'm, it's, it's like I'm, turn knobs till it sounds good. Yeah, like, you, I'm dumb though. Like, I don't even know really. Like, I kind of know what a compressor does, but I don't but, really know. But the point. <laughs> but here's the point. Once you know the principles of it, it's like there's no one. It's like it's like what what setting would you use to record heavy vocals? What does the vocalist sound like? What kind of mic are you using? Well, that's a pretty. What's dumb the question. type of? But you know what I'm saying? Like that. There's and again, it's like the secrets. It's like there aren't really secrets you know once you know how the basic principle it's like you just kind of like turn knobs till it sounds good well i don't even mean secrets i just mean information uh, well no you like for example we we put this in you're soft like limit. soft limit yeah i wouldn't even know to look for the soft limiter or even right. i literally have to go on wikipedia right now to see what my right. limiting why it's soft how can I mean a hard <laughs> limiter you know because i ain't soft i'm hard <laughs> All right. You know, I don't know any of that stuff. Right. So I see, you know, he has a rack over here with some stuff in it. I don't know what any of that stuff is. Right. I don't know why he has it. But I notice when dudes have a rack with stuff in it, it sounds better <laughs> sounds than my good. shit. You know? <laughs> so because uh, I, I do demos. I've gotten way better. But mm -hmm. but then again, everything I do is always like I don't I'm, I hate. I'm kind of the guy where if I get something, I don't even look at the instructions. I just want to learn how it works on my own, like figure well, exactly. it out. Uh, but that's also a little bit lazy because it's... There is. There's always that thing, you know, RTFM. 
read the fucking manual yeah and and or i don't like to look look it up until i hit like a block right you know i'm not i don't want to because it's just boring to sit there and and read things that are rudimentary that may or you may or might not, yeah. may not need so I, I just get kind of bored easily and sure. uh, sometimes i don't know where to start so right but uh so to back going backwards or talking about so i've got this the devil driver thing which is like all outlaw country done metal it's all like old school like hank williams johnny cash songs Rob, I've, I've heard about it yeah so that's that's um that's what i've got over the next uh you know couple of months just basically just mixing um and then uh, insight i have the new insight record but that's not starting till january Right on. Well, I have to say, Steve, you are, you are the genuine article. Um, I Thanks, I can't Tom. tell you how how instrumental you've been to my ex band's career and to my personal just the way I see music um, and you know that experience or multiple experiences we we had um, really really stuck with me and you know it's and I really seriously hope we can actually do something together uh, in the near future. To. And uh, because I've always you have my number, <laughs> I have your number. I ever know sometimes with you know, there's so many different producers that something you know, because we were actually we asked we tried to get you to do determination and, and because of scheduling conflict, mm -hmm. you couldn't do it. Um, so there was always and it makes me think like, what would that record sound like? Would it be would it you know, it almost it would set you us on a different path. You wonder it's it's interesting, like just how records sound. I could have ruined your whole career. <laughs> hey, hey, man. <laughs> Or you could have said maybe the band would have broke up, then I'd be a lawyer now. Maybe <laughs> you never you never know, and then I'd be doing very wealthy. You know, who knows? Who knows how the how this stuff works? But you know, like a lot of people don't know, uh, Steve. Uh, when we finished our first record, was one of the guys that sent uh, the record to Century Media Records. Mm -hmm. So he had a big part in uh, in helping us get a record deal. So this is you know really important to kind of where our band was coming from, you know, but also just my personal kind of entry into this, the, the professional world of music. So I, I really appreciate you doing yeah, this. Yeah, man. Of course, Great to man. see you. Pleasure. Great to see you. What the fuck? What the fuck? What the fuck? To the toys of a dark place, they can ignorate everything And I turn away Waiting in Waiting in 
That was Playing Dead by the band Turmoil from my favorite hardcore album, The Process Of. They were a fellow Century Media band. And when we were recording, actually, it might even mean before we did the album with, with Steve, uh, I think when we were doing the demo uh, with him, he played that track through like the big studio speakers. And it, it sounded like the craziest thing I've ever heard in my life. I could not believe that a hardcore band could sound that good. And let's just put it this way. We were we were sold. We were sold. And I, I think that album is 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 a classic and it had so much Steve had so much to do with why so many bands out of that scene and that era made an impact because he made us sound fucking great. So huge thanks to Steve. I hope you guys enjoyed that. Um yeah, there's a lot of history there. There's a lot of reflecting on on methodology of of the past and and you know i think it buried in there is is wisdom so i'm really you know these conversations i'm having is has been really kind of life-changing for me I'm, I'm i'm learning so much i'm getting so much um you know you know getting depth into into people's lives and, and how how much this stuff how you know someone like steve i haven't worked with him in almost, you know, going on 20, who knows, 20 years. It's been a long time. It's been a long time. And yet the, that two weeks we spent together, uh, still matters and it still it imprints itself on, on us. And you, you know, I, I can't really think of any, any, many things like that. Usually you have to spend a lot of, a lot more time with, with, with people where there's something about that, about, uh, getting together and creating something that people actually care about it changes it does change lives it does um impact people because i and i know that because i still get people who will tell me oh this record did this and this and it's i don't know it's kind of it's kind of mind-blowing um but i i leave myself open to constantly be pleasantly surprised and and moved i get you know this is actually i do i get i get moved it makes me a little bit makes me a little bit emotional you know thinking about how things kind of all come full circle and we still we still maintain those those relationships and those friendships in it, and this I, I enjoy having this uh, this podcast as like a meeting place for that to happen. So, anyway, uh, before I start uh, getting all bubbly on the uh, on on the old podcast here, really thank you guys for listening. Uh, keep checking out the show. Tell your friends. Rate and review on iTunes. Hit me up if you want to sponsor the podcast. I have a few people. I'm gonna have some ads running. I have some things. You know, pretty soon. You know, this the show's gonna be blowing up. So you might you might miss your miss your chance to get on the show. All right. Thank you guys so much. Keep on rocking. Mamba out. is the Jabberjaw Podcast Network. I don't think it overstates things to say that the Beatles were the greatest gift to entertainment and culture of our time, a secular religion, if you will, with their universal appeal and demonstrable impact on people's lives. 
I'm Robert Rodriguez, host of Something About the Beatles. With every episode, I speak with historians, musicians, artists, and Beatle witnesses, all in the service of fresh insights into the most joyous cultural entity the world has ever known. I hope you'll join me and listen to Something About the Beatles, now at Evergreen and wherever you get your podcasts.